Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy there, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order and talk about them. I'm Michael, and with me as usual is Cameron. Hey, Mikey. Yeah, Ronnie? You want to see a body? Not especially. You want to lie to our parents <laughs> like we all did in the 40s? <laughs> Well, surely we don't have television yet, so lying to our parents is all we got to amuse ourselves with. We love to make all kinds of stuff like tree houses and bossing little kids around and telling stories about barf. <laughs> That's what childhood used to be. Pretending we're in World War II. My pop served in World War II. He, he was a hero in World War II. <laughs> and I hate the dump man. <laughs> like the, the gradual like gremlinization of Teddy Duchamp. <laughs> oh, different seasons, Michael. Mm-hmm. Yeah, today we were talking about different seasons from 1982, Stephen King's uh inaugural like novella collection, which is a weird thing to say because I can't think of any other author who... So, one, Stephen King does these novella collections, uh, mm -hmm. and it's a thing that's, like, pretty unique to him. I cannot think of another author who kind of does the same thing. Uh, and then, two, he actually doesn't do it that much. I was, like, looking over the, the list of books in preparation here to see how many times he's done this. And it's only been like two or three throughout the course of his career. Uh, but nevertheless, mm -hmm. uh, this is kind of the big one. I think this is maybe the, the one that has the most cultural, you know, cachet uh, in terms of what people would know from the, the extended King of So that's exciting. Yeah. The other one, the other major one, I, I, cause yeah, I think you're right. There's gotta be a third one. I'm just blanking on what it would be, but, uh, the other major one is four past midnight, mm -hmm. um, which is what the Langoliers is in there, mm -hmm. which is, oh, you know, one that people are, I think just as familiar, well, maybe not as familiar with as the ones that are in this, but that is a, a popular Stephen King kind of story. Uh, but the other ones in that, no one, you, if you talk to someone about that, no one knows what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, oh, and then the third one's Hearts in Atlantis. Um, yeah. Is, um, you know, where a movie was made out of one of those as well. So, um, big screenplay fodder from, uh, Stephen King novella collections. He likes to cram a novella into the short story collections too. You know, The Mist is, a novella, you know, that opens uh, Skeleton Skeleton Crew, Skeleton mm -hmm. Crew, Skeleton Crew. Um, and so, you know, he, he likes to write a novella every now and again. But yeah, I don't think anyone else, I uh, much like you're saying, I can't think of anyone else who who makes it like a career thing to just occasionally release a novella collection. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, they, for, the, there's a fourth one. Um, I was just double checking. Uh, it's a post uh, 2008 one, so I haven't read it. It's Full Dark, No Stars. And that's the one that uh, 1922, which is like a Netflix series, uh, got mm -hmm. made out of one of those. So, again, more screenplay fodder, I guess. But Yeah, I actually did read this. I, for whatever reason, I thought this was a short story collection. But I, I did read this. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, more than one of them are about killing your wife. So that's interesting. Hmm. Mm hmm. Okay. Well, that's something to look forward to. Yep. Uh, <laughs> uh, things that different seasons, uh, is not about killing your wife. Well, <laughs> I got it. there's this whole prison named Shawshank where everyone seems to have killed their wife. That does seem to be like the number one thing that gets you into Shawshank uh, is to have killed your wife. Yeah, for if your wife's dead, you're going to Shawshank Penitentiary. Uh, it's pretty pretty weird. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, but uh, but for the most part, yes. Uh, <laughs> the vast majority of the words of uh, different seasons are not dedicated to killing your wife, but a small and select number of them are. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Did you know, uh, I, I didn't really, I, I mean, there is a, in your copy of this book, do you have the essay at the end? Yeah, the afterword, which I believe actually was published with the first edition. So we've gotten to the point in King's career we, where he can release a book and then have an afterword at the end where he reflects on his process. Yeah, which becomes per fairly common. I know it's in a lot of the Dark Tower novels and things like that going forward. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, well, I, so, you know, the reason I asked that question is that, um, you know, generally we kind of talk about the way this thing gets made. Do we want to talk about that essay maybe at the top here rather than at the end? Yeah, I would say so, because it's more interesting here at the top than at the end where he puts it. Uh, mm -hmm. just because for, for purposes of a podcast, I can see how this works for a book where you read the stories. And now it's like, now pull back the curtain. We'll see how this all happened. Uh, but for this show, let's let's start at the end with the afterword. Mm -hmm. The thing that strikes me about the afterword specifically is that Stephen King is reflecting on the history of the form of the novella, which we've said probably, I don't know, three dozen times by this point in the show. And you may not know what that means. So in the the big, uh, wide, wacky world of publishing and uh, specifically of publishing things that are written in prose of different lengths, obviously we have something like flash fiction, which is very, very short. Let's say 500 words or fewer. Uh, then we have the short story, uh, which is, let's say, somewhere between 1,000 and some other thousand amount of words. And then as you write more and more thousands of words, eventually you get to what we call the novel. Uh, now, what happens in kind of this weird middle area between short story and novel? That is where we get the idea of the novella, right? Sort of the, the short novel um, and all of this. None of this is exact, right? This is not like uh, some sort of uh, beautiful transcendental system for dividing up uh, things based on their word count. It's it's a really kind of like how many grades of sand do you have to move before you have a beach kind of thing. Uh, so novellas are sort of usually considered to be short stories that grow to about the size of like 15 or 20,000 words. And then uh, once you hit around 40,000, that's when uh, a lot of publishers are going to start considering the manuscript that you're working on to be like a short novel. So 
King talks about uh, this sort of form of middle length fiction that by his accounting had a, a very, you know, beautiful golden age in kind of his childhood uh, where I think what's one of the magazines is like the Saturday evening post that he talks about yes. like waiting to show up. Yes. Maybe like Collier's as well. Yeah. So he, he sort of reflects on kind of a childhood waiting for the, the postman to show up and deliver these uh, sort of mid century American magazines uh, sort of, I don't know how to even describe them, like, because they they aren't a thing that exists anymore, not exactly in this way. Um, but like, they're, they're almost like family magazines in the sense that there is stuff in there that like mom and dad and the kids are going to want to read. Like, there's going to be a mixture of news, you know, features, uh, uh, and then like original fiction. And so King reflects on his childhood, really enjoying reading the short stories that show up in these magazines and in particular the novellas, uh, because it was pretty consistent that you would get, you know, a a sort of longish short story um, or a shortish uh, short novel coming from, uh, you know, this person or another. And King really, really liked these. He loved reading them. And he has a great fondness for the novella form. And he is very sad by the fact that in this present day and age, meaning 1982, uh, that there is not really a place to publish novellas anymore. And so that's why he decides that he wants to put together this, this book of his novellas in order to publish them all at a go. Cameron, you and I had a little bit of a discussion about this before recording, uh, specifically with regard to this idea that there is no place to publish novel or novellas. Uh, what do you want to say on that? Yeah, I, I you know, Stephen King, it's a beautiful, this is a beautiful, like, Stephen King ideological moment if reading this essay. Because it, it really it really is like the guy on the internet, right? You know, like the Twitter user who was like, there's no good blank anymore. And then, you know, people, inevitably, when the, those kinds of tweets happen, people will be like, well, what about X, Y, and Z? And they'll be like, that doesn't count for whatever reason, right? Mm -hmm. And and he's 100% right, you know, and, and that's what we were talking about off mic a little bit, that this, um, the, the novella showing up in, like, the middle-class variety magazine, mm -hmm. um, especially in the era where television was not as ascendant as it became in the 1970s, maybe. That um, that so it, go, it goes away. The novella, for whatever reason, kind of uh, falls out of uh, publication popularity. That could be for a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, let's historicize just a little bit. The novella is a pretty uh, delimited kind of thing that appears. You know, in the 1920s and the 1930s, look at your average novel length, word count wise, and they look a lot more like novellas than they do look like novels. I mean, look at The Great Gatsby, for example. Mm -hmm. Hugely famous novel. Uh, really, word count wise, it is a novella you know, in the imagination of the 1940s, 1950s. Because Stephen King is growing up, as we've talked about before, right, during the boom of popular literature, in a mm -hmm. broad sense, of cheap, accessible, uh, everyone-reading literature. So that's all to say. Certainly, he's right that it goes away for a certain middle-class, you know, bourgeois magazine. But the novella remains a keystone in every piece of genre fiction. Mm -hmm. 
you know, the vast majority of Western novels you can buy are novella length. The vast majority of crime novels you can buy, novella length. Crime uh, magazines, still got novellas in them at this time. Continue to have novellas in in them uh, through, you know, 60s, 70s. I think they're probably gone by the 80s. He's probably right there. But um, fantasy and science fiction publications, still regularly publishing novellas. There's an unbroken chain of doing that mm-hmm. uh, in all of those things. So what's really weird is Stephen King being like, where are all the novellas? And they're in the publication, the genre publications that he works in, but he is no longer like in that genre space, and maybe never was, right? He was publishing in Playboy and Cavalier mm-hmm. rather than in the fantasy uh, or, you know, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, even though that's maybe where the gunslinger stuff was. Right. Um, so that's all to say. Uh, it, it's like looking with someone with some binoculars, like looking up into the sky, being like, Where are all the trees? <laughs> I can't see the trees. Um, I'm going to fix this problem by, <laughs> by publishing a bunch of novellas. And so, you know, on one hand, it's like, Steve, what are you talking about? Like, what? this is like pure hubris to say that novellas don't exist anymore. He's technically right. But also, the, the pieces that are in this book, I don't think would have showed up in the Saturday Evening Post. N- no. because that's his imaginary right like i want to read those kinds of stories where would i publish my kind of version of those stories one of the stories in here is about a nazi and a young boy who essentially fall in love yeah that's that's the saturday evening post is not going to publish that one steve i'm sorry yeah the 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 thing that is weird uh, is that you know king as as you said is is saying that there is no place for novellas anymore but the gunslinger has just come out, so he has been publishing novellas, right? That's what fix-up novels are, is, you know, you take your three or four novellas and you put, you stitch them together in some way. So the genre space for the novella is still there. It's still there today. Um, you know, Stephen Graham Jones is someone who is like, I think it feels like he's publishing a new novella every six months and he's publishing them standalone. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we were talking about that, too, that that in some ways the the novella seems to uh, Stephen King in 1982 can't see this, but the novella is like a really developed space right now. Mm-hmm. You know, 2021 tour dot com launched uh, or, you know, I guess it's just tour, but tour dot com uh, <laughs> launched that whole like massive line of fantasy and science fiction and horror novellas fairly recently. And that's apparently like a hugely successful line. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe it came back. Maybe that's the thing, too. Yeah, I think there's something about like the ways that like social media, having access to this stuff on your phone kind of brings back the novella in a way that, uh, you know, it's it's longer than a short story. So you need more time to read it, but it helps that you can sort of carry it around with you. Anyway, that's all just mm-hmm. speculation. But it's all to say, uh, you know, the, the novellas exist in kind of this genre space. Stephen King is imagining these more, you know, middle brow or, or sort of mainstream like literary stories from his youth. And he wants to write something like that. And these stories, uh, all of the stories in this collection are presented as, uh, not, not just presented as they are, uh, more literary in tone and sort of interest. Um, but we could also say more mainstream in tone, uh, or interest than previous Stephen King publications. This is a big shift for King in general. You know, he is at this point, he is the horror meister. He is the schlock meister, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And 
we have seen his uh, reflections on or gestures toward uh, other types of fiction in something like Roadwork or um, a couple of the other short stories, right, in, in the Night Shift collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is him kind of returning to, you know, his ideas of mainstream or literary fiction and wanting to publish those things under his own name. This is not, you know, Bachman stuff, even though there's a lot of Bachmanian qualities to some of it. <laughs> yeah, he can't. He uh, well, go, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> so uh, the, the the how this works then is he has three stories. Uh, I, I'm going to go ahead and name them. Hopefully, this doesn't ruin your your summary, Cameron. Uh, mm. But the stories are Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption, uh, which becomes the film The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, Apt Pupil, uh, which becomes the Brian Singer film Apt Pupil. Uh, mm-hmm. The Body, which becomes the film Stand By Me, which is what we'll be talking about on the bonus ode for this uh, this episode of Just King Things. If you want to drop by uh, patreon.com slash range touch, if you haven't already, and uh, kick us a couple of dollars to get the Just King Things bonus odes, we'll be talking about Stand By Me along with a very special guest. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that to be a surprise for you. But anyway... King comes to his publisher, he has these three stories, and if you are a person who has not read Stephen King, but is familiar with at least, like, the the two, like, non-horrifying movies that I just mentioned, Shawshank and Stand By Me, um, mm-hmm. Apt Pupil, we'll, we'll talk about Apt Pupil in kind of its own thing, but that's, that's the one about the Nazi and the young boy in a really weird relationship. Um... Mm-hmm. He brings all of these to his publisher and he's like, I want to publish a a book of these literary novellas. And I want to call he he had committed to the idea of calling them seasons for, you know, whatever reason that had that had come to him. Uh, And so his publisher was like, well, if you're going to call them seasons, there needs to be four. So then he wrote the fourth novella, uh, The Breathing Method, which is the shortest and um, kind of the closest to being. Uh, you know, Stephen King genre stuff, kind of being a uh, horror novel with elements of kind of the fantastical or the improbable in it. Uh, the other stories then, uh, in Shawshank, Apt Pupil, and The Body, are all kind of uh, grounded in in realism. There are no supernatural elements. There's gross stuff that happens. There's horrific stuff that happens. But it's all within this context of everything being, you know, quote unquote, like the real world. Um and this gets published, uh, and I don't know how exactly it's received, other than I know that people consider it kind of this shift in tone for King. Uh, but I will say what is successful about it, uh, to some degree, is that it shows he can work in both genres or both modes. There can be kind of a, a, a genre science fiction-y horror King, and I think the best kind of like mainstream fiction king that we've seen so far comes out of this collection yes uh, yeah that was that was my pause earlier where he, they are, it is mundane fiction for sure mm-hmm. but it's still hyper stylized genre fiction yes i mean you know shawshank it's a prison escape story mm-hmm. and it, it's a crime story i mean it's it's in many ways just an excuse to tell a bunch of really short crime stories mm-hmm uh, and that's the way it works. Apt Pupil is an exploitation story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a not Nazi exploitation story, one hundred percent. 
and has some of the most morally objectionable stuff Stephen King has ever written in it, I think. I, we'll talk mm-hmm. about that when we get there, but like just straight up like, who? Uh, and then uh, and then the body is, you know, nostalgia porn, right? Mm-hmm. Like it is 100%, wasn't it great in the old days? And I love that it has so much like Stephen King genre trappings like, <laughs> the man who works at the dump, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? you know, who we've already seen. That's already a, like a fixation in Salem's lot, the, the character there. So it, it, it's really weird to me. I, I think that's right. I don't think anything you said is wrong there because obviously it is this kind of um, different mode. It is mundane fiction for, sh- for sure, but all the pieces, you know, it's almost like he went and, you know, uh, he broke down like the the science fiction and, and horror radio that he's been playing with this whole time. And he like broke all the pieces down and rebuilt it. And he calls it the, you know, the mundane fiction radio, but it, it, you know, plays the same tunes in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that um, that's, yeah, it's uh very much a kind of repackaging of genre stock tropes in a kind of language of mainstream fiction, which I think is very, very mm-hmm. interesting. And I think speaks to, I mean, that's the Stephen King thing, right? Like that is what he mm-hmm. can do is like break these genres apart and repackage their pieces in interesting ways. Yeah, I, wholly unaware he's doing it too, I think. Um, which is which is partially why the breathing method is, you know, not to preview when we get there, but why it's so bad mm-hmm. uh, is that he is trying way too hard to repackage some of, some other stuff into a different form, and it's not it doesn't work. I don't think. I think that it's like barely a story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it, it in it's most of its construction, but yeah, everything else is this kind of like weird remixing that's going on. Um, and maybe maybe we should just uh, move our way into talking about those things. Uh, one thing that I want to just also talk about in this mm-hmm. afterward, just because I know if we don't bring it up, someone's going to like message us about it. Uh, mm-hmm. it's 1982 and Steve makes a really weird decision to call, uh, the novella a quote, anarchy ridden banana republic. And then, <laughs> what? I, I mean, I believe that to be true. I just don't remember that. Oh yeah. No, he, he just, it's just a weird, it's, it's how he's trying to explain like, you know, I have these stories, I've written them and I don't have any place to put them. Right. There, there's no like oh, real. Oh, that. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, and, he, and you kind of like convince this character who's like presenting these things. I do, I do know what you're talking about. Sorry. Yeah. So then it just like it folds into this just like weird little story where he's imagining being on like a like Banana Republic airline and mm-hmm. there's like a, a sort of flight attendant talking to him and the flight attendant's dialogue is all written in like phonetically like uh like stereotypical Mexican accent. Mm-hmm. Uh and it's just a weird moment of, uh, you know, racism uh, just happening here as he's trying to explain, like, what's going on with the novella form. Let's talk about this actual, actual book. I, I'm, I have apparently been, uh, oh, one other thing about that. Remember that also Steve is writing this book while someone is playing Billy Joel and uh, someone else is playing Bruce Springsteen way too loud. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> as we learn. Uh, if you if you don't know what we're talking about, go to uh, you got to go to patreon.com slash slash uh, uh, ranged touch support us on Patreon to listen to the bonus episode where I explain what was going on in Pittsburgh. <laughs> <sighs> uh, five sentence summary, huh? Yep. That's where I'm going to try to now. Do I get one sentence for each uh, each of them and then like a bonus sentence? 
I, that's, is that what you're telling me here? That's that's your call. You can choose to have one story that's two sentences and all the others are just one sentence, or you can try to do all of the stories in one sentence and then have four sentences of mop-up. Ooh. That's it. That is intriguing. Mm-hmm. What, ex- what, what a devil's bargain. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> in... In Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, a man uses clever accounting to enable himself to crawl through some sewage. In Apt Pupil, a Nazi finds his best friend and then kills himself. (laughs) In The Body... You learn exactly how many evil 1950s greasers can fit into two cars. <laughs> In the breathing method, you learn and can appreciate how boring a doctor can be. <laughs> These are all nostalgia ridden, almost saccharine sweet stories that seem to be completely unrelated in content and in argument from what Stephen King believes they're about. That's my five cents summary. All right. It works. <laughs> mm-hmm. Those are all accurate. All those things truly happen. Yeah. Uh, no semicolons. None at all. You actually, that's probably like the, the, the clearest uh, five sentence summary we've gotten from you really. Five declarative sentences. Mm-hmm. I'm saving them up. I'm saving up my grammar for <laughs> uh, uh, oncoming episodes. Don't you worry. Well, that's great. Uh, I think you are apt uh, in your assessment that there is like, I mean, this is a thing that we say about King, I think, pretty consistently is that there's usually a disjunction between like what uh, King thinks a story is about versus what it actually appears to be about if you're reading it. Uh But this is an interesting collection because you can you can sense the moves when he's not doing it out in the open, which mostly happens in the body. Uh, Mm -hmm. You can sense kind of the the moves that are trying to be made from like, you know, the normal genre stuff to like something that is more literary or more mainstream. Uh, And so what a lot of this ends up being, I mean, Let's just start with the first story, right? Reader Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption, which I think is... Oh, uh, uh, before we jump right into that, so these are four seasons, mm-hmm. you know, different seasons, four seasons. The, this, Reader Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption is the first season, and it is Hope Springs Eternal. Is is this just something that is worth ignoring? Um, I mean, what well, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, like this, as he says in the essay, this is just a conceit to like get his publisher to publish this thing. Mm-hmm. Well, so is it just worth ignoring and pretending like it's not there? I I think it's worth mentioning, uh, especially in the context of Shawshank, because I think that is kind of I mean, I think that's the reason that Shawshank works in the way that it does. And I don't just mean this novella, but I mean, like the film, like what this mm-hmm. story is and what it's about. I think that idea of hope springs eternal is core to to how it works. Uh, the others, I will agree with you, are not terribly interesting or worth like we will we'll mention them, I guess. But mm-hmm. um like this is the only one to me that actually feels like it's doing anything. Uh, so mm-hmm. 
I don't know if you feel differently. <laughs> I mean, it, it's certainly, I mean, it literally is the end of the story, right? Mm-hmm. Is it, it keys into hope. Uh, not to preview that too much here, right? But uh, at the end of this, there's like, you know, the, the broad strokes of the actual story here, right? Beyond five sentence summaries. The broad strokes of the story is there's a guy who goes to prison uh, and he's there for a really long time and he eventually escapes prison. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the deal. And he does it by digging through a concrete wall over the course of many, many years. And the whole thing is narrated by a guy he's in prison with, a student named Red. Mm-hmm. And at the end, uh, uh, Red gets out of prison. You know, if you've seen the movie, you're familiar with this, too. The broad strokes of the story are the same. And at the end of the story, um, you know, uh, they've they've spoken <laughs> spoken many times about this place called Zihuatanejo in Mexico. Um, have you seen the Last Man on Earth television program? I have uh, not. Michael? There is an elaborate, long form story about uh, like they all dream of going, or a couple of the characters dream of going to Zihuatanejo, and I think it's the second or the third season. They just do that. <laughs> they, they like get a boat and then go to Zihuatanejo. Uh, exactly, and it's just a directly a Shawshank Redemption like subplot. But um, so Red gets out of prison at the very end, and he's going to uh, hopefully meet back up with Andy. This guy was in prison, and he says, uh, "This is the last line." Of, of the story i hope andy's down there i hope i can make it across the border i hope to see my friend and shake his hand i hope the pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams i hope this is the exact same way not not those five lines but this kind of gist here the exact same way that the mist ends i actually mm-hmm. went to look it up because i was like <laughs> i think i've seen this before you know the last uh you know the two words one is hartford the other is hope mm. um you know stephen king loves to end a, a novella with hope <laughs> Um, and I wonder, maybe we, you know, maybe hear that, that it's not super productive to talk about that because I don't know how much Shawshank does with that. But when we talk about the mist, I want to come back and maybe compare it to Shawshank a little bit, because I think that that story is folding some Shawshank into it in really interesting ways. Well, I think, I think it's not re- inappropriate to th- to consider the hope issue here, if only because of what this, so you've already said that this is, you know, a prison story guy goes to prison and he breaks out. Uh, but on a sort of like larger, more abstract scale, what this story is, is about, it's a, it's a type of formula story. It's similar. The, the thing that I compared it to actually in conversation with you is that this is one flew over the cuckoo's nest, but like with a happy ending. So it's the story of an individual who ends up in an institution where they rightly should not be for whatever reason. And their kind of a weird individuality, like the, the, their refusal to, uh, like buckle beneath the institution's demands of what a person is supposed to be. So in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, it's about um, a character named Murphy who uh, pretends to be mentally ill so he doesn't have to go to prison. Instead, he goes to a um, like mental hospital. And then he has all of these confrontations with like the the, the nurse there and everything. Um, and then here, it's about Andy Dufresne who... uh, as a man uh, just stricken by horrible, horrible luck ends up looking very much like he killed his wife, even though he insists he did not. He insists that he's innocent, but like everything has worked out in just such a way that he looks like he did it. He goes to prison and he 
insists that he's an innocent man. And as read, the narrator tells us, you know, everyone in here is innocent. Everyone says they're, they're innocent, but he's like, you know, uh, red also says like of all the people who I ended up, who I've believed when they've said that Andy Dufresne was one of them. Uh, and then Andy, uh, has all of these interactions with the various forces around Shawshank that are both like other prisoners, but also like administrators and the warden and everything. Uh, and whereas one flew over the cuckoo's nest ends with the institution kind of exercising its power and crushing Murphy. Um, we have here, uh, Andy who with his, you know, can do right. His stick to it spirit, uh, manages over the course of like two decades or something to use a very tiny hammer to tunnel through a wall and escape. Uh, and so there's kind of this very, and I, I, I think it can be easy to hear me say this and be like, Oh, this is like Michael being, uh, like the, you know, armchair critic, uh, with like leather patches on his sport coat and talking about, uh, the, the plebeian pleasures of the vulgar populace, uh, in their Steve's greatest enemy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, I think that this story is a piece of sentimental fiction, and I think that's good about it. I think it's good at being sentimental, and I think that's how it works because people like like sentimental stories about individuals going up against cruel institutions and not being destroyed by them. Uh, you know, people can have all sorts of debates about like the actual politics that may or may not arise from this sort of thing, depending on the institutions and sort of like the strategies of like personal perseverance that that get represented, but like. It's yeah, like this is a story about a guy who doesn't uh, he goes to prison, shouldn't be there and kind of like through his own sort of uh, uh, willpower and belief manages to keep himself together enough that he eventually finds a way to get out. Right. And also like screws over a whole bunch of people who were very mean to him. So it's it's really that kind of power fantasy of like the person who was right the whole time got vindicated. Great. Yeah, before we had video games, we had the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, that's what we had novellas. That's where they went, is we got video games. We don't have to do it anymore. Yeah, this is Cool Hand Luke. You know, this is basically any uh, prison drama from, I don't know, 1960 to 1985, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, <laughs> like it, it's, it's a stock story in some ways. And, uh, you know, the real innovation here, I think, is not that part. Because I think everything you just said is 100% right. You know, this is Stephen King trying his hand at a well-worn, you know, genre that goes, I mean, it goes all the way back to, uh, I was a, oh God, what's the name of the the film. I was a convict on the chain gang. Something um, like that. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, from the 30s. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, com common story. Guy goes to prison, realizes it's a hor horrifying system, uh, sticks it to the man, gets out. Um, the real innovation here is the narrator. Mm -hmm. uh, in the narratorial voice, this is the character of Red, who is writing the entirety of this as kind of a memoir after he gets out of prison, which, again, very similar to the mist in form there. Um, Red allows Stephen King to do all of the stuff that he would do in something like Salem's Lot, where we talked about the kind of wandering camera. And we've mm -hmm. talked about it a few times, but that still really is the, the I think, th that in the stand or the two kind of real places where we've seen it show up a lot. Mm -hmm. Um it allows him to do that and but do it within character voice. You know, there are several times um where the the narrator voice says, "Let me tell you what happened." And then <laughs> he'll tell you like all the facts of something and then he says, 
let me tell you what I think that I don't know. This is just my supposition of what was going on behind the scenes. This is kind of how he tells the story of um, Andy Dufresne actually escaping the prison. You know, he says, like, here's the facts of the matter. Here's what I think happened around those. It, It allows for to give character voice to this kind of wandering eye that Stephen King is very good about deploying. And uh, I, I think it, it you know, it, I think this is like cracking something in the Stephen King or, you know, breaking in a new tool in some ways of figuring out the different ways to control the kind of cinematic eye of the narratorial voice. It's not just um, third person omniscience running around. It's third person omniscience when it's convenient and, you know, limited subjective uh, imaginary when it's convenient, you know, he's really figuring out how to like push different pedals mm-hmm. and make different things work, you know, going back and forth here uh, in a way that, that just straight up works. You know, I think that you could rewrite the Shawshank Redemption as a kind of straight up story and it would be one third as compelling mm-hmm. because so much of Andy Dufresne is a character, the, the guy who escapes this accountant. He is only known by like the glimmers of personality that people get from him but you know part of the key of the novel is you don't really know what he's thinking ever you know we we are limited in our ability to know him there is no omniscience to the narrator there Mm -hmm. and and it's precisely because of that that like the escape plan can be hidden for so long we can learn so much about Andy Dufresne and never learn what he's actually about this whole time Mm -hmm. and what like the end game or the end goal is for him um, and it's, it's just a, a, you know, a brilliant, um, a brilliant style of writing. I think, I mean, this is really changing something in the Stephen King machinery, I think. And this, this narratorial method is what makes it so good. Mm-hmm. I uh, like, I think this is the engine. In fact, so many pieces of different season, different seasons are going to show back up in it because Stephen King r- figures out how to do you know, red narratorial pseudo omniscience Mm -hmm. and to do it with like eight different characters Mm -hmm. and then mixing it all around. And they all have perceptions of one another. And it's those perceptions of each other that fill in the world. I I mean, this is going to be a huge part of the Stephen King engine going forward. And uh, it's, it's a big part of it. It's also shows up quite a bit in these next couple dark tower books that people really like, you Mm -hmm. know, Roland trying to figure out Eddie Roland trying to figure out Susanna, Eddie trying to figure out Susanna, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, uh, I think, really impressive. Also of note that uh, if you've seen the film of Shawshank Redemption, mm-hmm. it kind of infects your reading, I think, of the story due to uh, Red's race. Yeah. Uh, in the novella, uh, well, let's start actually with the film. In the film, the the very famous film that I think many people have seen, uh, quite sort of, I guess, iconically, really, uh, the character of Red is played by Morgan Freeman. So The Shawshank Redemption is a film that is narrated largely by Morgan Freeman, reading kind of this, you know, very cool Kingian narratorial prose. In the book, uh, Red is a white man, um, which is not like in and of itself, like its own sort of problem, right? There's just uh, like, if you look at it, if you put them side by side, uh, what is actually very clever about how they adapt it. And I was reading something about this and we'll probably do like Shawshank as its own bonus episode at some point in the future. So I don't want to talk too much, but Mm -hmm. um, 
I remember uh, I was reading something where I think like a producer or something on the film, uh, maybe it was actually Rob Reiner himself, uh, suggested Morgan Freeman uh, against type because uh, like the specs in like the, the casting call were like for a white uh, actor and they went with Morgan Freeman precisely because someone was like, you know, this movie has a lot of narration in it. You know who could really narrate the hell out of this thing? Morgan Freeman. The film gets that uh, little joke where someone, it might be Andy, um, asks Re asks Red, you know, why do they call you Red? And Morgan Freeman says, as a joke, right? Well, it must be because I'm Irish. Yeah. Uh, it, because that that is why they call him Red in the, in the story, right? Mm -hmm, exactly, right. So, like, that's that's a weird thing where, no, in the story, he's just like, he's, he's a white guy with presumably red hair because everyone yeah. knows he's Irish and then they turn him into Morgan Freeman and they take that line and they make it into a, like this interesting little joke. Yeah, that might have been from because Darabont, you know, directed the uh, uh, Shawshank Redemption and that might have come up in that episode of Mick Garris's podcast that you and I both listened to. Mm. I think that that might have been where uh, where that showed up. But, but yeah, so there's some interesting stuff going on, but there's this way of like, it, it's really fascinating. And I kind of experienced at the beginning where like, you know, my mind's eye is filling in characters from the film. You know, that's just like thing that happens. I think to many people, it certainly happens mm -hmm. to me in the narratorial voice. I'm reading in Morgan Freeman's voice. And I, and, and I think it's kind of actually kind of critical to like really get everything you can out of the story to like kind of break that and be like, no, 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 this is not, that's not the voice here. This is not, as best I can tell, or for the most part, this is not an integrated prison. No. Um, th there's one uh, Native American guy who shows up, um, but beyond that is all white people. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so there's this weird kind of, and I don't know what the real world prison makeup is of, you know, uh, main prisons 1930 to, to 1960 or whatever. Mm -hmm. So who I, I don't know, you know, one way or the other, how that, how if that is historically accurate about prison segregation or anything like that. But it does create this kind of peculiar quality of like, it's a sentimental novel that is entirely that has a racial imaginary yeah that that's stuck in with it right this is about inter inter uh it's about white on white violence i mean and i that that could be treated as a joke but i don't mean that as a joke it quite literally is about the ways that white people gang up on one another and do things to other white people to the point where white people quite literally in the novel are called the n-word mm-hmm um, you know, there's this place, I wrote the page number now, on page 38, this is Red kind of explaining the, um, the racial workings of the, or not the racial workings of the prison, but the general power workings of the prison. He says, in, in prison, every con's an inward, and you have to get used to the idea if you intend to survive men like Hadley and Stamus, and Hadley and Stamus are, um, they're like chief guard and the, uh, the warden. Mm -hmm. And and so like the logic here is that you know and this is like very much a I think white boomer imagination of the world right that in a world in where where uh, white people are only around other white people that like racial categorization or power categorization based on um, racial logics just gets replicated mm -hmm. um, so like people always do bad to one another and so like. You know, the use of the N-word here is to talk not about, like, racialization or anything like that, but power dynamics. And I I don't 
I don't think that is a good thing for a writer to do. I think that that makes them like huge and massively ahistorical and um, nonsensical. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Like allegorical relations here that go on. But it tells you a lot about the way that that King thinks about prison. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, which is that, uh, you know, I don't know, like power power differentials get produced. And uh, those come with, uh, they are produced within certain parameters that pre-exist those systems. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he cannot think about like a racially violent prison system. Stephen King, I don't think, could write a, 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 a convincing or a good novel about this exact same prison in Alabama. Um, mm-hmm. I, don't, I think his brain would short circuit. <laughs> trying to to figure out what that would look like or or would, would be like. And so I think he solves a problem for himself by functionally being like, it's just white people. And it's just like white people from middle class to lower class main experiences. Um, and that makes this kind of saccharine, um, you know, sentimental novel thing. It gives it a really weird character mm-hmm. of like the sentimentality is based on like a, a racial monolithic presence yeah um i you know i like it's almost like this inverse utopia kind of vibe (laughs) well it's i Uh, I don't know it it left me feeling really weird after after reading it yeah i mean to me it seems just sort of quintessentially kind of like post 60s uh like white liberal boomer in that way because this is essentially it's a it's a colorblind ideology right the the yeah yes the the idea here is that as you say the subtext here, or sort of the the angle, right, like the the signal, I think maybe we're supposed to be picking up here, or at least like the the political thinking here, is something like race is not important. Everyone is human, right? Everyone is a person. Uh, that's what I believe. So I don't even like I'm not gonna kind of like even see color, uh, or I'm not going to fixate on it. Instead, I am going to uh, look at like this you know, social grouping of white people, I am going to locate kind of this power dynamic. And because there's a hierarchy here where people are, you know, in positions of authority and power, and they're exploiting and abusing uh, people who are below them who have uh, no recourse in any functional way, really, right? They're, they're sort of totally, you know, at mercy of the system and of the institution that has kind of like uh, contained them Um, because there is an analogy, like because I can sort of see the analogy there with say like uh, uh, like a system of slavery, um, which is like, this is, this is also to be clear, right? This isn't Stephen King being like, Hey, look, the, the prison system has an awful lot of unpaid labor. Although like the, the labor issue does show up. Um, it's more like, because I can sort of sketch the, the parallels here, um, that just makes race not matter even more, right? Because I can, uh, kind of see a similar type of structure operating in an all white space. It just shows you that like, the, the color thing doesn't matter because any person could become, uh, you know, the abject of the earth uh, mm-hmm. if they're in the right sort of uh, wrong situation. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, that no, that is 100 percent it. You know, it, it, you know, it, it, it is colorblind prison writing. <laughs> and in th- that is, um, you know, if you know anything about the history of, of prisons through the 20th, 20th and 21st century, that's just, it's almost nonsensical in it. And, and, you know, that might account for um, 
Because, you know, all the time people are talking about and have for years about why is the Shawshank Redemption film so popular? Mm -hmm. Like, what is it? And I think part of it is, you know, a prison escape genre, like you were talking about. It's a powerful fantasy. And the other, the, the other part of it is it makes the same argument. You know, it's, it basically says that, like, they're all human beings are the same. Mm-hmm. Like, it is a universal system. Mm-hmm. And like that, if you, again, if you know anything about prisons, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. About the people who go into prisons, about how they're treated in prisons, and about how people get out of prisons. None of that is, is remotely the same. It, it, it's, this is just as much a fantasy as the gunslinger is, mm-hmm. <laughs> just in a different kind of way. But, uh, you know, so, that, you know, that's something that's at the heart of, of Shawshank, uh, you know, as a story, is the, the way that it imagines what prisons are. And it's a fantastical imaginary. Mm-hmm. But uh, we can jump on by that for some other stuff. The, the mechanics of the story are very predictable and uh, kind of normal, right? So Andy Dufresne is able to convince the warden and several other people uh, that he can basically both do their taxes to save them a lot of money and also cook the books for the prison because there's all kinds of illegal stuff going on Mm -hmm. there. And he does that and all kinds of like hijinks happen. Uh, There's some pretty explicit and um, awful stuff about like um, gangs in prison and, you know, sexual assault in prison Mm -hmm. um, that that I think also is... uh, a big part of the um, popularity of the film of that, because I think there's a lot of like resonance with people's uh, fantasies about prison there too. Stephen King, like really latching on to people's like cultural fears, you know, and that's what Stephen King says horror is all about, Mm -hmm. right? What happens to you sexually in prison is, you know, a a central uh, American paranoia um, that uh, has never gone away. Mm Mm-hmm. But, uh, and, and also is real. I mean, those things also happen, but that, you know, is a, is a focal point. So that gets a huge amount of space in this novel, in this novella based on, you know, um, just like word count wise. I'm fascinated by the Rita Hayworth thing, right? So Andy's digging this hole. Mm -hmm. He's digging through the wall and he gets posters over the years. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, he to cover it up, and it starts with Rita Hayworth. Rita, Rita Hayworth, a famous actress, um, early twentieth century. What nineteen nineteen forties? Yeah, I guess it's not early, but you know that. But the, King actually gives us a list of uh, of uh, uh, the next people. Mm-hmm. Marilyn Monroe is the next one. Uh, you know, the famous subway great mm-hmm. photo. Jane Mansfield. Um, Hazel Court. Mm-hmm. I don't. I have no idea who that is. Um, Raquel Welch. Mm-hmm. So this is like you know greatest hits of like pinup ladies. Yes, of this time period. And then Linda Ronstadt, <laughs> who is amazing. I I I love Rin, Linda Ronstadt. I uh, her music is truly amazing. Great stuff. I'm all about it. Not even remotely in the same cultural category as any of these other people. Yeah, it's it's an it's, interesting shift, and I think it's uh, worth noting that the film, I am pretty sure, ends on the Raquel Welch poster. <laughs> that, that makes a lot. It makes a lot more sense. Um, it, it's such a funny. It's like such a funny Stephen King move, right? Of him being like, "Who who do I think is a very attractive woman?" 
Linda Ronstadt, who I actually went to look. I was like, uh, you know, were there like pinup posters of Linda Ronstadt uh, in that time? And it seems like there were. So like this is not outside of the universe of the thing, but she's a very different looking human being from any of those other people. And certainly I don't think was treated as like as much of a universal sex symbol as all the others. So there's this really weird kind of intermingling of like the general culture, right? Where like everyone thinks, you know, Marilyn Monroe. Okay. You know, like we get, we understand the mechanism of, of celebrity there and all of that stuff. And then it like goes into this weird spot that is like, I think very specifically <laughs> Stephen Kingy. Um, and uh, I, I just really appreciated that. I literally, while I was reading, I was like, what? <laughs> like what is happening here, Steve? Um, but, uh, you know, it's his own proclivities and desires. They show up, you know, it's kind of like reading a Philip K. Dick novel. And it turns out that every like, uh, good woman is a short, dark haired woman with brown eyes. <laughs> and you're like, Hmm, I wonder what's going on there, bud. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Weird. But, uh, I don't know what, what else stuck out to you here in the Shawshank Redemption? Um, I mean, honestly, not much that I haven't already said. Mm hmm. Let's talk about apt pupil. Um, little uh, kid, like, uh, you know, better better summary here. Kid discovers that an old man who lives in his Southern California town is a Nazi on the run, uh, and blackmails him into being his friend. And then they get kind of entangled with one another socially, and they both start doing murders independently of one another. And then they both die at the end. Yep. <laughs> yep. I mean, that's that's the real gist. This story. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know how we've talked uh, several times about uh, Richard Bachman stories being cruel. Mm -hmm. This is Stephen King just folding the Richard Bachman cruelty into his own name. Mm -hmm. This is a Bachman book, like straight up. Yeah, it I mean, it is a it's a rewriting of rage. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Like, I mean, yes. what if what if Rage actually had a character like a, a sort of like central character with, you know, psychology or something? Not to say that the Todd has great psychology uh, or, or sort of sensible psychology, but uh, like it, it's it's the same sort of like uh, angry young man with like hatred and just bad stuff bubbling up inside of him and what happens when that gets out into the world and starts influencing his interactions with other people yeah because uh, crucially you know todd does not w when he discovers that that dusander this uh concentration camp um like commandant um, when he discovers that he is living in his hometown, he does not report him to the police. Mm -hmm. He blackmails him into being his own like, like best friend Nazi. Yeah, to basically. Todd is like obsessed with World War II and specifically with the Nazi concentration camps, and not in like a I love history and I'm going to learn everything about it and like you know make the world a better place kind of way. He's like into the fantasy of running a concentration camp like he is like when he realizes so the, the the backstory we get in the novella is that he's uh hanging out with a friend uh and he finds the friend's dad's like old world war ii magazines 
uh, in the garage, like a big stack of them. Uh, and these were these were like real things, uh, sort of. Uh, oh, they're still real things. There's a thing called the History Channel that's dedicated to doing this still. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. Which you can you can you can finish saying this, but this is I think the only kernel of something interesting that that's in the story. Mm-hmm. But but go ahead. Uh, it's these you know it's these magazines that are about World War II um, and focused predominantly on the European uh, theater and on like the Nazis in particular. That's sort of like. You know, putting itself forward as like, you know, uh, the dark secrets of Hitler's final days, like learn how close the, you know, Wehrmacht came to doing such and such a thing like that sort of uh, presented as like, this is just history. These are things that happened. Um, But in the the eagerness and the uh, consistency with which these things are talked about again and again and again, like here's all the horrible things that were happening in such and such a camp, right? Here is what this commandant was doing. Here is what his wife was doing and so on and so forth. Um, what Todd picks up on as a, as a character, right? Uh, very, very uh, sort of quickly is like, Oh, there's a way in which you can say these things as if you're trying to say this should never happen again. But really, what you want to do is to think about these things as much as possible and sort of fantasize about them. And that is what I want to do. Like, I want to know more about this. Uh, And so when he manages sort of by complete chance to figure out that this old man in kind of like his neighborhood is a Nazi war criminal in hiding. Uh, His response is not, I'm going to turn him in and be like, you know, the best little hero boy. It's like, I can finally get like direct reportage of what things were done and what it was like. Uh, And he's thrilled by that. Um, And he's, I mean, Todd's a little shit is the other way to say this. Yeah, Todd sucks. <laughs> Fuck Todd. Yeah, uh, but uh, but no, absolutely. And and this is, I think, the the kernel that the story the story grows into a bad story. I think I like I just don't. This there's not enough that happens. It's way too long. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there, there's way too much going back to the same thing over and over mm-hmm. and over again. It's just there's just not enough here. This is a short story that has been blown up almost to novel length. It is way mm-hmm. longer than anything else in this in this collection. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's like a bad story on moral grounds, even though we'll talk about in a minute, uh, you know, about some stuff I really find objectionable here. But um, I think it's a bad story because Stephen King knows that he has an idea and he keeps returning to it in the story itself, but he can't ever flush it out. He doesn't know what to do with it. And that, that interesting bit is uh, that what is our fascination in the United States with constantly talking about the Holocaust in, in extreme detail? Mm-hmm. Um, and I th- and and the Nazis and I think that's a like a very fair fair question even today, um, you know there is this kind of national um, I, and it's weird to see this in 1982 too because this is a full decade before you know the kind of Spielbergian mm-hmm. explosion of uh, you know heroic World War II stuff, um, you know we're, we're that's still very much nascent um, and just kind of an implicit part of of American culture, but there's this kind of thing of of uh, the two sides of it, right? Of relitigating and, and constantly talking about World War II to talk about American heroism in it, mm-hmm. and then constantly talking about the most grisly, uh, dehumanizing, horrifying details of the reality of the camps. Um, and, you know, I don't think Stephen King is saying, and I, I definitely am not saying, we just shouldn't talk about it. 
But he's pointing out that there's this this um, grisly and common and constant fascination with the details of what human beings did to to other human beings um, uh, that borders on the perverse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's still the case. I mean, like I said, flip to the History Channel every now and again. Uh, or just, you know, look up World War II documentaries on any given service that you want to. And you're going to find a couple hours of just talking about Mangala mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. Um, you know, maybe the maybe a media, specifically a mediatized fascination with the most brutalizing real life things that human beings do to each other. That might not be good uh, in a broad and general sense. Mm-hmm. Um, that might that might come with some baggage that we are not properly talking about. Um, you know that the it, I think there's another fair question to ask about that with the explosion of the true crime genre right now. Yep. Um, you know what what what's going what desires are being fulfilled or or what um, uh, cultural holes are being plugged by by this kind of thing? I think it's a fair question to ask, and I think that that's a, a super appropriate question for art to address. What the hell is happening? Um, I think this is a a bad <laughs> a bad version of addressing it. But I think that kernel is an interesting one. Yeah. Um. Uh. And it's an interesting place to start. And ultimately, <laughs> you know, it's really the limits of Stephen King's imagination, where he's like, "What if there were one really bad kid?" <laughs> yeah. That's that's kind of the thing about this. Because, uh, like, I agree with you. Like, I have very weird feelings about this novella because. Um, I think it's, you know, bad and unpleasant in all the ways that we've described and in ways that we are going to talk about um, shortly. But on the other hand, I find the premise of it, like the, the, the sort of setup, like I actually find it very compelling. Uh, per, for precisely this reason, right? The idea of like, because Todd is described, he's like, I think 13 years old when it starts. And so the first thing we see of him is him like riding his bike down the street and he's like, you know, clear faced, uh, blue eyed, like blonde haired, all American boy, uh, just riding his bike down the street in, uh, I can't remember what the city is called. It's like Santo Donato, I think, which is, this is another interesting thing is it's West coast, uh, California. Mm -hmm. Uh, the first time Stephen King has ever set anything there, I think, uh, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Todd, you know, this kind of all American figure, uh, goes to this old man's house and is, and is like, Hey, I found out that you're a Nazi war criminal in hiding. Uh, now I'm going to blackmail you into telling me all of your Nazi secrets, because I think that stuff is really cool because I've got this unhealthy fascination with it. And then he and, uh, Dusender, uh, get locked into this like really horrifying codependent relationship where they're each like relying on each other to keep their secrets from the wider world and their lives fall apart. And I think sort of conceptually, that is an interesting story. But as you say, how this story actually plays that out is uh, both repetitive over long um, and then like it's this thing that I feel like King does pretty frequently where it seems like he stumbled upon an insight, but then, and I'm like, Oh man, he's actually, he's seen something here. And then as the story progresses, I'm like, did he actually see what I thought he saw in this case, uh, this question about Todd, uh, and him like sort of getting really interested in these world war two magazines, uh, is Stephen King indicting the culture there? Uh, because in some ways he is, but on the other hand, like, because of the way Stephen King writes characters, right? When when Stephen King writes a person, um, you are either a good person, a bad person, or frankly, miscellaneous, right? Like there are three sort of modalities of Stephen King character. 
Um, and Todd, uh, cannot be a good person who also like uh you know is wants to be a nazi obviously so todd uh, gets talked about sort of consistently as if he is just sort of naturally occurring evil and i mean the 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 problem with this is that it puts you in a situation where like so like did the nazi magazines matter or not yeah yes uh, th- that is the kind of core problem he is he is both saying that uh, there is a cultural fixation that might be bad you know, and that's like good old fashioned moral panicky kind of stuff, right? Stephen King, bread and butter. Um, and also, uh, some people are just Nazis. Some people are born Nazis. Um, and those, I mean, I guess maybe both of those things could be true at the same time, but within the world of fiction, that you can't you can't have it both ways. I don't think. I think you got to pick a side, and Stephen King does not pick a side, right? Um, but but yeah, I mean, you know, there's something going on there where he's saying, you know, the Nazis got to come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the impetus uh, for this kind of thing could come could, could uh, emerge from anywhere, even sunny Southern California. Mm-hmm. And like you're right, that, like that's that's a compelling thing to talk about. And and the reality of it is, is both in 1982 and now that is happening all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, white supremacists, uh, right wing nationalists, those people emerge from everywhere. Um, constantly from, for many myriad different reasons that can't, you know, we can't just point to one magazine and we can't point to just inborn evil, right? There's all kinds of social, uh, reasons, reasons why that emerges. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Stephen King almost perfectly threads the needle to not have to deal with any real world way that people, you know, get, get lured into or become compelled by, or are excited by nationalist right-wing policies. <laughs> he like it's this this perfect maneuvering of never having to deal with anything real here. It's it's such a good example of I think like uh, that the fact that Stephen King is not a systemic thinker uh, because <laughs> yes. because not only do we have kind of this like Todd's naturally occurring evil, which actually I'm going to say this story before I forget it. So there's a, a great little anecdote where Todd t- or <laughs> there's a great little anecdote where King turns this uh, manuscript into his editor or one of his editors or something or maybe it's a, an early reader who reads it and they are delighted by uh the fact that todd's name is todd which is of course the german word for death and so you know there's like a the the, the reader has all of these like symbolic response like you know like literary responses to this naming choice and stephen king has uh in an interview somewhere uh some mention where he's like and i just did not know this or like if he knew it right he, it wasn't a thing that he had thought sort of explicitly about so to have it turned back to him and be like what a great choice and he was like yes that was a great choice thank you for thinking i did it intentionally um i love it when stuff like that happens <laughs> as like oh, me too i love it when it happens to stephen king specifically <laughs> well i just i like it because I, it does feel like the sort of thing that happens when you're a writer where like sometimes you like put things together in a way that another person is going to connect dots and make you seem like more incisive than you are but anyway uh in addition to kind of, uh, you know, Todd's inborn evil and the magazines that he finds, um, we have a couple of other things that get like very lightly touched on as uh, parts that parts of the machine that made what made Todd what he is. One of them is that his dad is uh, pretty racist, but mm-hmm. yeah, uh, he and his dad never really talk to each other and don't have a great relationship, it seems. Uh, but his dad, we have a couple of scenes where his dad is like talking to um, Todd's mom and the his, the dad is never like 
you know, straight up complaining about different races, but uh, he does this thing where every time he talks about a character who is not white, he will in passing remark upon the fact that this other character is not white, right? He just sort of like, he's, he's a person who like is casually and constantly remarking on uh, like races and ethnicities of other people. He's also often complaining about um, the homeless people in the city uh, and how they, you know, don't have jobs and they're not working hard enough and all this stuff. And that especially is a thing that we clearly get signaled that like Todd has internalized. Then there's this very light, uh, weird implication that like the parents need to be more strict with Todd, like, uh, because they're they, like Todd and his parents are kind of on first name basis with one another. And it's kind of weird. And I'm not sure how we're supposed to take it. But uh, I, I get a little whiff of like, you know, Monica, his mom has this bit where she thinks like, Oh, you know, maybe we should uh like take a take a firmer hand with guiding Todd through his his young childhood, but he's just a good kid and he's going to find his way on his own because kids are naturally good or something. Like just she, mm-hmm. she's she has kind of a, a very sentimental or idealized idea of like how children will just sort of naturally grow up to be good that I think we're supposed to I mean, obviously within the story we're supposed to find it sort of like naive and ironic. Um but like I don't know it, like, is this story also trying to say that, like, these West Coast parents who uh, aren't firm enough with their kids are also somehow letting the kids just sort of naturally become Nazis? Maybe. I don't know. Yes. Oh, yes. No, I, I'm going to say yes. A hundred percent. Todd's mom's too hot. Oh, yes. Like, that's the other thing. She's like wearing a crop top. She's like having a drink at the end of the day. Uh, like, she's like way too permissive and liberal for Stephen King's taste. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like. Yeah, a hundred percent. This is a condemnation of the parenting, and the and they are the wool is pulled over their eyes so easily, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he's he's conning them for like a full five years of his life, and uh, you know, and and they exist. I mean, there's a, a, a parallel that's set up between the way that Todd cons his parents and the way that Dusander cons the world. Mm-hmm. Right into thinking he's a kindly old man, and Stephen King can't just let that parallel exist. He has to literally bring that into the same, uh, you know, space. So Dusander goes to their house, you know, mm-hmm. and and cons them in their own home. Right. So there, there's this kind of thing of like the not the hiding Nazi, it, it, who is a literal Nazi, and the high the hiding Todd Nazi. They're the same, mm-hmm. and the way that they hide and who they're hiding from is mostly the same group of people. Um, these like center right, um, and yet somehow two liberal parents, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, the, the broad society, they are not equipped to really root out the evil here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a guidance counselor is, you know, the prime villain Yes, <laughs> in, in this, or the antagonist, I guess, he's not really a villain, but the antagonist for, uh, uh both Dusander and, uh, Todd, uh, it's a guidance counselor who is just like he's too concerned about young Todd. Right. He's he's a guidance um, counselor who is too concerned about young Todd, but also uh, too uh, too interested in appearing relatable to the children that he works with. <laughs> he wears sneakers to work. Yeah, and that, like everyone calls him. He, they have a nickname for him that's really mean. I uh, rubber Ed because he <laughs> he wears a uh, rubber like uh, boots when it rains, so all the kids call him Rubber Ed. Oh, yeah. So, so I mean, this is the maneuver and the, you know, we were talking about uh, everything we've just said happens in the story, right? So, like, 
Todd is blackmailing him repeatedly, like makes this old man like wear a like SS suit and everyone starts having nightmares. Mm -hmm. You know, every everyone is like in too deep, essentially. This is paired with Todd's like going through puberty. And so King turns this the whole thing into like a psychosexual thriller, essentially, mm-hmm. where the anticipation and waiting and the stress of this, you know, like Todd starts masturbating in order to deal with that. And like Todd knows that he has to stay undercover and like not allow any of this to appear. So he like starts having sex in order to do that, in order to be like one of the guys, Mm -hmm. you know? And so there's all of that kind of getting um, folded in here. There's a lot of concern about what does everyone else do? How do you hide in society? Well, like compulsive heterosexuality is one way of hiding in society uh, because Todd very explicitly says he, he just has no sexual interest in basically anyone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where this weird kind of uh, psychosexual tension or whatever is coming up with Nazism itself, where Dusander stands in for that. Um, we've alluded to it enough times that we, you know, we should just talk about it. There, Todd has multiple kind of sexual fantasies about Nazism. Mm-hmm. Um, that are truly in their writing and reading, like disturbing to read. Um, he fantasizes. He fantasizes that his girlfriend is Jewish and being experimented on in the camps and tortured, mm-hmm. and that he is having sex with her. No, he's, he is. He is raping her. He's not having sex with her. He is raping her. While Dusander watches as part of an experiment to like do Nazi shit, whatever, mm-hmm. um, and like that, everything that I just said is that's a lot going on. It is several, a couple pages in the book. I mean, we're really going through it and getting kind of a play by play of how this is happening and how Todd's responding to it and how this like uh, dream version of Dusander's responding to it and how she is responding to it, and that's like the only way that Todd can have sex with a human being Mm -hmm. is like having these thoughts, right? So, you know, from like a writerly perspective, right? King King is doing this to demonstrate Todd's fucked up, Mm -hmm. right? Like Todd's got some issues going on here. Um, And and, and not in a way of like sexual fantasy is just sexual fantasy or whatever, right? For Todd, the sexual fantasy is caught up in the fact that he is murdering people and he has fantasies of murdering more people, mm-hmm. right? There's a direct relationship between fantasy and reality in the the in the story here. Yeah, there's there's I think um, actually a, a weirdly enough, I think there's a claim or point trying to be made here about like the erotic economy of the fascist mind or something, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. The that the the that murder and you know, syst- systematic murder, genocide genocide and sex and like how you live in the world they're all one thing mm-hmm. you, know, you know like those are undifferentiable from one another um because there there's also this vibe you know dusander starts uh he, like murders some neighborhood animals uh in very pretty graphic ways he starts murdering um uh the unhoused uh, you know what, what the story calls hobos mm-hmm. um he starts doing all those things and that is 100% kind of written as a reclaiming of his masculinity and man in manhood mm-hmm. in, you know, he's 80 years old, I think at this point. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yes, the, the kind of psychosexual economy of Nazism gets, uh, formulated for someone who is like, you know, post-sexual activity in their life. And then someone who is at the, you know, uh, beginning stages of sexual activity in their life. 
you know, Stephen King is trying to show it from both angles. I don't know. I, I think you're right. I think there's an implicit and explicit uh, argument being made here about this. I, it it just reads like exploitation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just an exploitation novel. I, I cannot say this enough. This is just, at the end of the day, an exploitation novel. And uh, I get no even remote pleasure from reading it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's I mean, it's it's bad and it's dour. The story ends with uh, 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 Dusander uh, has a heart attack while trying to dispose of a body of one of the unhoused men that he's killed. Um, mm-hmm. And he gets Todd, who's now like nearly a senior in high school, to come over and help him out, like finish disposing of the body while also like helping him not die of a heart attack. Uh, Dusander goes to the hospital after they've kind of uh, tidied this all up. And wouldn't you know it, you know, evil defeats itself uh, because Dusender is put in a room uh, right next to a, a man who is a concentration camp survivor, a Jewish man who was in mm. the camp that Dusender was running. And so uh, the man recognizes him and then sort of sets in motion like the uh Alerts the authorities so that it looks like Dusender is going to get caught. Um, this is bad for Todd because Todd has spent like the past five years of his life going to see this man and being like, oh, yes, he's the old man in my neighborhood that I read books to. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, if, if Dusender is caught, then this raises all sorts of questions about Todd and how much he knew. And he knew quite a bit. He knew it all. And he kind of like loses it. And Dusender, when he realizes he's going to be caught, uh, he he kills himself. Um, and or wait, no, does he? Or does he? Who? Uh, Dusander? Yeah, he does. he does. Okay, because and this is where like the critique comes up again. Mm-hmm. You know, this implicit critique uh, of like Nazism in America and the American fascination. He kills himself. I'm, I was looking for the page, but I can't find it. But it's he hears some like ruckus going on in the hospital, and he can hear. Uh, neo-Nazis demonstrating outside. Mm-hmm. And so he knows that he's been found out if the neo-Nazis are coming to support him, essentially. Mm-hmm. And like that's something I was like, oh, that's uh, King does maybe have his, his foot on the gas a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, he, he takes a bunch of pills. Yes. So he, he kills himself. Um, and uh, several years before, earlier in the story, uh, when Todd, when, basically when Todd started psychologically disintegrating, um, he started faking his report card, uh, like, you know, editing it so his parents wouldn't know that he was doing very poorly in school. Um, and then in order to like he was the guidance counselor, rubber Ed or Ed French, uh, requested a meeting with his parents. So to get around this, he has uh, Dusender uh, pose as his grandfather and he comes in, pretends to be his grandfather, charms uh, rubber Ed French. And uh, he's like, oh, yes, no, the parents are just fighting. It'll all, you know, his grades will improve. It'll all be over soon. So that sort of it works. The problem is uh, when Dusender is revealed as who he actually is, uh, the guidance counselor sees this in the newspaper and recognizes him as the man that he met as Todd's grandfather. He also tracks down Todd's actual grandfather and realizes that this is not the same guy at all. So he goes to see Todd, who basically knows the clock is ticking for him and has in sort of more recent years begun fantasizing about carrying out a mass shooting at a nearby interstate. Um, 
And so French walks in and is like, hey, Todd, can we talk about your grandfather? And Todd, who is like at that very moment cleaning his gun, uh, shoots the guidance counselor and then dashes off to the interstate to carry out the mass shooting that he's been dreaming about. And, uh, you know, it ends with the uh, how does it, what's the the line? Uh, the the ending line, uh, as much as I hate this novella, uh, top 10 Stephen King endings. Uh, I'm king of the world, he shouted mightily at the high blue sky and raised the rifle two-handed over his head for a moment. Then switching it to his right hand, he started toward that place above the freeway where the land fell away and where the dead tree would give him shelter. And there was a line break. And then it was five hours later and almost dark before they took him down. Mm-hmm. Like that, that is... As much as I, like I said, I hate this novella, that is a, like, Stephen King-ass ending mm-hmm. that, that really does work. And it's like, good God, like, we know what Todd has done and can do, and five hours is a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to look for this little spot uh, where the demonstrators show up. I can't find it, but there's another really great thing here where the uh, kind of Jewish... Uh, not quite a Nazi hunter, but like a kind of a special operative is what he gets called. I think it's uh, Weisskopf mm-hmm. is his name. Yeah, Weisskopf. Um, they're describing him. Dusander's looking at him. Um, but this was not the boy wearing a, a rather old-fashioned blue suit, much too hot for the California climate. There was a small pin on the lapel of the suit. Silver, the metal you used to kill vampires and werewolves. It was a Jewish star. It's like you, you could see King like... You know, he he like Dusander is that kind of creature for him, right? This kind of Nazi thing. Mm-hmm. But good God, we we've spent so much time in his mind as a as a man and as this kind of like thing for uh for Todd to bounce off of that like uh that is not the picture that we get the, for this whole story. But I, I I feel like you were about to say something else about the uh the end of the story there. Sorry. Oh no, I, I just wanted to actually go back and touch on something that you said at the beginning, which is that in, in the summary that this is kind of about these two guys falling in love. Um Todd yeah, and, and yes. Dissender, Which yeah, like they become extremely like codependent and like by the end right Dusender is the one who is like thinking this sort of thing mostly is like you know by god little he's like by god that little boy is such a huge shit but like whoa did he make the past couple of years really interesting for me like I kind of got to respect him and we kind of like have now I think we have this respect for one another because we've been playing this messed up game of cat and mouse for so long uh and it is really weird and i also wanted to say that like if you are listening to us talk about this and you remembered that there's a film of this that we mentioned earlier and you're like hey i wonder if they're going to check out that film or if i'm going to go check that out um we're not going to talk about the film i just want to say that here uh we'll probably never talk about it i don't recommend you see it um it was made by brian singer uh, who also made things like, you know, X-Men and uh, Usual Suspects, uh, but more famously, more recently, uh, has been at the center of uh, a lot of accusations about his treatment of underage male stars, um, uh, specifically like, you know, coercing them into sexual acts or like just being, generally speaking, sexually uncomfortable uh, with them or about them. And a lot of these accusations uh come from this film that he makes of apt pupil um specifically like i think the first lawsuits that get brought against him are lawsuits of uh child actors who were on this on the set for apt pupil 
Correct. Yeah. The film itself uh, changes the story in key ways that actually like heightens the uh, like both the queer subtext, but then also Singer pushes in. I'll just talk about it here just so we can all be on like the same page. Singer rewrites the end of this story for his film so that when the guidance counselor comes to Todd to say, hey, I think I figured out something that's, you know, I figured out like this whole thing with this Nazi rather than killing the guidance counselor and then running off and doing his shooting spree. uh, Singer has Todd uh, sort of respond to the guidance counselor's accusation by saying like, well, if you tell anyone, I am going to tell, I'm going to start telling people that you were sexually inappropriate with me and other kids and touched us. And then your career will be ruined. So if you tell anyone that, then that's that's what I'm going to do. And he sort of like then marches off to his life of being like, you know, a young all-American Nazi. Um, as you can see, uh that's a really loaded change to make, a very despicable change to make, uh, especially when uh, we think of the specific accusations that have been levied about Singer. So, yeah, substantial allegations against Singer for years now. I, I first became aware of the, those right after X-Men, um, when when the first X-Men fa- film came out. But there are allegations that have been so severe um, and serious for so long that, you know, uh, USC took his name off. Um, the program and things like that. Um, so uh, the, you know, it, it really, you look at this novel and you look at the, or this novella and you look at the way that it was changed. It, it, you know, I think it's impossible to to see that film or think about that film and not see these things as resonating with one another. Um, especially since he fought so hard to get this movie made. Uh, the person who's the, sc- the screenwriter is the person who, I mean, he recruited someone to do it specifically. Um, you know, his handprints are all over it. So not to belabor the point, but uh, makes it hard to read this novella with a lot of that in mind, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I just I wanted to bring that up just in case because I imagine at some point we'll get questions about whether or not we would watch it or if it's worth watching. And I we're not going to watch it, and I don't think it's really worth watching. Um, yeah, I think yeah, I agree. I think the answer is both. But yeah, there there's this weird thing go, that goes on where you and and you might you know I I think probably obviously at this point uh, us describing uh, you know like a love story between a middle school and high school boy and an 80 year old Nazi sounds a little bit weird, but that that's the only way to kind of describe it. And it quite literally, it becomes a psychosexual thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, both of them from both perspectives start using the word attraction mm-hmm. uh, to one another. That is never explicitly sexual in any kind of way that that's like not what's up mm-hmm. um, in that way. But there's this kind of, uh, like you said, codependent um, enmeshment that occurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, 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 it's really interesting that they kind of like fall apart from one another for a while and then have to come together with these murders at the end. Um, that kind of structure is really interesting. But but yeah, yeah, no, it's just it's we and I mean, the the, the thing that help uh, not helps, but the the additional piece of evidence about sort of the weird psychosexual element here is that when Dusender is going around picking up unhoused people, um, he is doing that uh, sort of knowingly thinking that most of these men he's like he's going in, he's inviting them to his house. Um, he's like, you know, yo, you know, come to my house, I'll give you dinner and you can take a bath and change your clothes and so on and so forth. He's, you know, putting on the kindly old man act. On the other hand, he also knows that most of these men, um, 
assume that he is like an old like an aging closeted homosexual who's inviting them back to his house so they can like have sex he knows that and he's using that to his advantage because he knows that uh they assume that because he's an old gay man that he's like you know weak and effeminate uh similarly Todd uh becomes impotent right it be it becomes impossible for him to uh have sex with his girlfriend uh, in sort of normal circumstances because he just cannot get an erection. However, he also starts killing unhoused uh, men at like the train yard and in a very similar context where like the, I think the first guy he kills is one who offers to like give him uh, oral sex, right? So mm-hmm. the the whole like weird queer subtext uh again like being folded into the the psychosexual uh dynamics of of nazism or fascism uh bad stuff gross stuff not a great thing to read i'm going to uh, go out on a limb here mm-hmm. i think steve might have been out of his depth on this one yeah yeah <laughs> i think he might have bitten off more than he could chew <laughs> <laughs> oh it's not a great story but uh let's talk about a pretty good story you want to talk about a pretty good one? Yeah, some one where Steve, I think, bites off just the right amount for him to chew. Yes. And over-chew, to some extent. The body. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh... apt pupil, sorry, sorry. Apt pupil, just by the way. Um, Hope Springs Eternal, that was Shawshank. Apt mm-hmm. pupil is Summer of Corruption. Uh, and then the body is called Fall from Innocence. This is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> what a terrible way to organize a book. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a memoir. Mm-hmm. By Gordy. Gordy Lachance. Gordy Lachance, who is just Stephen King. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that is that a fair thing to say, do you think? I mean, it seems an awful lot like it. Like, I mean, in, in terms of, like, Gordy's specific, like, home life and family background, where he has, like, an older brother who died in, um, I think it's, I think it would be Vietnam, because I think this takes place in 1960. So, uh, Gordy is this young boy in rural Maine in 1960. Uh, he wants to be a writer, and he has all of these friends, and this story is about he and his friends uh, going on a quest together, essentially. But Gordy's kind of complicating factor, in addition to wanting be- to be a writer, is that his older brother, uh, who was like, you know, uh, mythological, like he, his older his older brother was much older because his parents, uh, I think, had problems uh, conceiving. And so in some ways, he feels like, you know, their entire his parents entire lives revolved around the older brother. And he was kind of this, you know, accident who came along, you know, something like seven or nine years later. Uh And uh, his whole kind of deal is feeling both very apart, like part of the place where he is, this small town in rural Maine with all of these people who know each other and all of these kind of family histories, right? People are from good families and uh, bad families. Uh, But then also feeling weirdly apart from this situation uh, in a way that I think is sort of like it builds out of the fact that he always feels like a stranger in his own home and he knows or sort of like suspects or feels like he is not going to be in small town Maine. By the way, it's Castle Rock, Castle Rock, Maine uh, for Mm -hmm. the rest of his life. Um, And so, well, and part of this is also like the filter here is that he is writing this. Gordy is writing this uh from the present day he's writing this reflection on his childhood uh but in the present day he has become a wildly successful internationally famous author uh to the point and and so he's not just you know 
an author. This is on page 411. Okay? Because you learn he's a writer and he's been successful. You get this in bits and pieces, right? Through this memoir. He's kind of bouncing back from his memories to the present day. Blah, blah, blah. Um... And although I've written seven books about people who can do such exotic things as read minds and precognate the future, that was when I had my first and last psychic flash. I'm sure that's what it was. How else to explain it? And then he, like, talks about what's happening. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Who do we know, Michael, <laughs> that writes stories about TK and people who can read minds and all kinds of shit like that? Hmm. Who is that? Yeah. I wonder. Yeah, no, this uh, this story is just like so plainly autobiographical and at the same time, like not at all autobiographical on account of being fiction, right? It's it's a really interesting double bind here. Yeah, it's it's like the vibes of childhood. <laughs> like <laughs> what if you could write an autobiograph autobiography of it, the vibes of your nostalgia for your childhood? Um, and, uh, but, but here's another thing that I find really interesting about the parallel between Gordy and, uh, King. Gordy also never, uh, says that he's like a science fiction writer. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that he, what, what is in that sentence? He's never like, yeah, I'm a science fiction writer now. Blah, 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 blah. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Nothing at all. Just a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the... King's, King's, like, ability to just, like, never give in to that is... I, I guess it's impressive. I don't know. It's something, <laughs> um, you know, yeah. I might, it's, it's like the power of heroic individualism, right? Like I am my own man. Yes. Like I will never be brought beneath the genre. You can call me the shockmeister all you want, but I'm going to write about rural Maine and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> huh. They, what, but the, the gist of the story is they find out about a body. Mm-hmm. One of them. What are these kids names? There's Vern. Yeah. So the, there's, the uh, protagonist gordy narrator protagonist mm-hmm. uh then there is uh the the cool tough kid from the wrong side of the tracks that's uh chris chris mm-hmm. um and then the, the they're the two who matter basically the, they're the <laughs> ones who get to be uh characters who are real people uh then there mm-hmm. are mary and pippin um uh <laughs> teddy uh Teddy Duchamp and Vern Tessio, um, who are kind of like basically like they are they are the two kids who are like less uh, cool and smart than Chris and Gordy. Um, and I, I that can sound like I'm presenting it very cruelly. Uh, I don't mean for that. I just mean like this is how this story is written, is that there is kind of a there's like a sort of uh, the, the thing that unites Gordy and Chris is that they are kids who know or suspect or something that they are going to leave Castle Rock, right? This this small provincial town in sleepy 1960s rural Maine uh, is not going to be their entire world or like, you know, they, they can at least dream beyond it or they're they're starting to dream beyond it in a way that uh, in the, the novella is very clear about this, that uh, Vern and Teddy are not going to and don't. Yeah. And this is the, you know, we've talked, uh, we've talked several times already about the kind of stock characterification of King's works, you know, uh, the writer, uh, the evil greaser. Uh, This is it. 
like here you go here is the next i don't know um 20 years of stephen king's work in these four characters Mm -hmm. uh because there's like the writer character and gordy is just a replication of king in some ways but then a replication of ben mears and Mm -hmm. all these other guys uh chris is roland Mm -hmm. (laughs) right you know he is someone who is smart enough to know what his limitations are and he will be um uh he will overcome the world Mm -hmm. uh through like sheer grit and power you know Mm -hmm. he he is uh roland and he's jfk no he's also he's Stu redman in the sense that like Stu redman right even even if he comes from like a a bad family because his family like his family is like the bad family of castle rock right um even though he comes from this family of delinquents uh, or like he comes from a a sort of like disadvantaged situation socially, he has a heart of gold. Yes. And the grit and determination to overcome those circumstances. He is, he is the American heroic individual. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and we're going to see that a million more times, but yeah, I mean, and in retrospect, right. Roland is a Stu Redmond too, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in that way. Um, And then Teddy is the trash can man. Um, you know, he is the, he is also the, the, well, maybe not, maybe, um, who, who's the parallel for trash can man? Uh, M O O N. That's oh, oh, Tom Cullen, Tom Cullen. I just couldn't pull it. Um, you know, he is the, the person who, uh, does not have all the pieces, you know, of whatever, like, uh, like the average person is, um, and yet still has a heart of gold, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the noble disabled, Mm-hmm. Uh, for lack of a better term. And that's a Stephen Kingian kind of thing. And weirdly enough, that's also going to be like a dog sometimes too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is like pure ideology on King's part. And then Vern is just the, just that guy, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like the filler guy um, who is like not super smart, uh, is kind of the common man mm-hmm. in Stephen King's imaginary. Uh, these characters will populate nearly every novel going forward. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there, and here they are another quartet, which we talked about way back in the stand episode, and have hinted at or gestured toward whenever we talk about the Dark Tower series. But the quartet, of course, is King's term for kind of like, uh, here's four people who are going to go on a quest together, and the quest that these four boys go on is to go to the edges of their known world, right? To to like walk out into the wilderness beyond Castle Rock, uh, up into uh, the the train tracks to find the body of a young boy from a neighboring town who has been hit by a train and and died. And they're going to go uh, see the body thing. Number one, right? They want to see the dead body. Uh, But they're also their, their secondary plan is like, once they find it, they can act like, Oh, we discovered this uh, and get kind of like the accolades of the community for finding, um, you know, the, the, the corpse of this missing boy. Uh, But how they discovered this is that Vern's older brother who runs around with the town juvenile delinquents among whom is Chris's older brother as well. um, uh, They actually discover it and get freaked out and Vern happens to overhear it. And then he tells his friends and that's how they hatch this whole plan to go find the body and become heroes. Mm hmm. Uh, and then it's just kind of like, uh, you know, a ser- it's an adventure story, mm-hmm. you know, an adventure story in a small town. You know, it's like set piece after set piece of stuff. They go to the dump um, and, and these are every single one of these are like uh, an opportunity for characterization. So, you know, they get attacked by the dump man and his dog and they realize, guess what, Michael? 
that the dog that that attacks everyone at the dump, he's just like a normal little dog, <laughs> you know. And they're like they're growing up a little bit here because they realize the dump guy who works there, he's not as scary as they thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's actually really concerned for his dog because they keep taunting the dog and making it bonk its head into the fence. Um, I did like in I think it's in that moment where they talk about, or, or maybe he says he's going to call Sheriff Bannerman. Oh yes, yes, Deputy Bannerman at this point, or yeah, Constable. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's Constable Bannerman at this point. Yeah, yeah. He calls. Uh, he threatens to call Bannerman, and they say that the dog is the scariest dog in Castle Rock until Cujo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, and so they're. You know, this is the king king of Earth coming through here, right? Well, you and know, the thing they're... that I forgot to mention about this up until this point, uh, they also talk about Shawshank. Yes, because Shawshank yeah. is outside of Castle Rock. Also, back in Apt Pupil, uh, when Dusender uh, first like snuck into America and assumed an identity, he uh, had an accountant named. Andy Dufresne, who luckily yeah. for Dusender ended up going to jail, so Dusender got to kind of like cut and run again. Yes, um, and I believe Red Red uh, murders his wife by in Castle Rock. He's from Castle Rock, right? I because think so. The, the story there, he cuts the brakes and she goes down Castle Hill. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, so you know, all of these are connected. Well, I, the three, the first three of these are all connected mm-hmm. in some some uh, implicit, you know, very light way there. Um, but uh, but yeah, so they're like kind of going through this. I would say that for the most part, these are kind of actiony set pieces that are interesting to read. Like they're fun little adventure pieces, but not particularly interesting to talk about. You know, because they go over a big trestle where a train's coming, and uh, lo and behold, the train comes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a reason why this makes for such a good movie, and this will be what we're talking about on the bonus episode. So you can hear us. Uh, you could turn this off right now and go listen to us. With a special guest talking about uh, Stand By Me. I'm sure we'll talk about all of this in much more detail there. But it turns into a, a film really well because each of these are very distinct scenes. And then they're intercut with, you know, young boys talking to each other about serious stuff for them and growing up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there they're very much is a nostalgia for a time when this is what young male activity was, you mm-hmm. know, discovering yourself mm-hmm. uh, with other, uh, you know, peers and not sitting in front of the TV. You know, there, there's a, there's a real Stephen King, uh, everyone's on that phone too much kind of <laughs> thing going on here. Although uh, it's TV. He's more concerned about kids obviously. these days need to be in their clubhouses, smoking cigarettes and reading comic books. <laughs> yes. He thinks that's like mm-hmm. the morally good thing to do. And they shouldn't be reading Nazi magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what? I guess that's true. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, maybe I shouldn't smoke cigarettes. That's objectively bad. But, you know, socialization is good for children, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's good um, that it's the, good that Gordy is making up like a, he has a whole continuity of World War Two <laughs> stories that he tells his friends about like a uh, like a diehard battalion of Americans like fighting their way through an occupied French town, uh, which is like, I, I love that, right? Because Gordy is not just, he's not just a hopeful writer. He's like the storyteller of the friend group. And so they're like, yeah, Gordy, like, tell us another Ladio story, uh, which is a, like his little shared continuity. And he also talks about how he is, uh, he's trying to write stories uh, set in a small town in Maine. Uh, and he calls it Gretna. So you see, like, this is a Castle Rock story, which is this Stephen King doing this precise thing. And then we have the Stephen King analog character doing it within the story itself. 
So this this uh, the the Gretna story that he tells about, I mean, and this is like Stephen King's fat phobia showing up again, right? Mm-hmm. Like Stephen King, as we have established before, you know, he explicitly says uh, people who are too fat are inhuman. You know, that is straight out of Dance Macabre. So it's no shock here. But it's basically about a guy who is bullied too. It's a, it's a story that that Gordy tells here. Mm-hmm. And it shows and up it's in a the story film too. And it shows it very famously in the film. You know, I, I think that many people have seen that clip and not seen the film. I've actually run into that before. Um, but uh, it's about a guy, uh, like a fat teenager, mm-hmm. who was bullied for being fat. And he um, gets involved in a pie eating contest and throws up on purpose mm-hmm. and causes everyone in the town to throw up. Mm-hmm. This is the worst story I've ever read in my life. It's terrible. It is a real story that Stephen King wrote and published in the College <laughs> Literary Magazine. Um, and it is presented here with that. Like, it is it is a story Stephen King wrote, but it is presented here as if it were written by Gordy Lachance. But yes. uh, I think actually, yeah, yeah, I think with the same, like, the same uh, citation, right? Like, Stephen mm-hmm. King literally takes a previously published story, pulls it in, and just switches out his name for a character's name. No, Well, so, no, the, the header here is uh, The Revenge of Lardass Hogan. That's his name. It's the kid's name. By Gordon Lachance, originally published in Cavalier. Oh, so he oh, puts it in Cavalier, right. which is even better. Uh, March 1975. I was confusing it with the earlier story we get, uh, Stud City, <laughs> which does not show up in the film. Uh, but that's the one that is cited as appearing in like the University of Maine's literary magazine. It's the same thing. Uh, Stephen yeah. King took a story that he has previously published and then attributes it to this fictional character. Yeah, Stud City published in Greenspun Quarterly. Issue 45, fall of 1970, used by permission. Yeah, the uh, that story is, like, fine. Like, it reads like a story that's made by an undergrad who has, like, no life experiences but wants to write about, like, hard-boiled fiction. Right. Um, but the, the, the barfing story is just, it's awful. <laughs> like, it's just the, a terrible story, I think. Um, and, like, reading through it, I was like, I'm waiting for this to get good. There's, like, nothing. There's nothing here. Um, I, I, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, Gordy is like, what if Stephen King was just Richard Bachman? <laughs> like a, like a, like a less hard edged mm-hmm. Richard Bachman. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe, I don't know if Gordy shows up in other stories later, um, or not, but there's a kind of turn. So it's kind of like, you know, teen preteen hijinks throughout the most of the story here. And then eventually it gets to the point where, they are getting close to the body and it really turns into a story that's about like, what are you willing to do to like grow up a little bit? Um, two notable things happen at the end. You and I've talked off mic about this a little bit, or at least about this first one that Gordy has a dream about kind of, that is symbolically about his friends holding him down and keeping him in castle rock. Mm hmm. And it is straight up out of it. Mm-hmm. Like, like it is the type of, of like weird event that will happen to all the characters in it, where it's like these pseudo dream spaces that are about we- real characters, where it's the creature from it kind of, you know, doing stuff to them mentally. But it ends with a wildly racist thing um, that also kind of will show up in it, weirdly enough. Because um, it, it's uh, like... 
Teddy's like grabbing onto his leg and dragging him underneath this water, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And he says, you alive, Teddy? And Teddy responds, this like dream Teddy responds and says, no, I'm dead and you're a black N-word. He said crossly. Mm-hmm. It dispelled the last of the dream. I set up by the campfire and Teddy lay down. It is like straight up out of nowhere that this this happens. And this is like a weird moment of like, obviously this is meant to be like really resonant and strange and like, I don't know, like work in some way. Mm-hmm. And I'm so far removed from whatever cultural reference is happening here that it, that it is just bizarre. Um, I don't I don't know what to do with this at all. I mean, my my understanding or sort of my sense of this one, I think it is just as like uh, bizarre and incongruous as you do. But I think the expectation here from like the writer's perspective is just like uh, for us to get that like, oh, yeah, this is just what, you know, uh, these young boys said to each other right it's like it's like calling each other names like when you're being vulgar Mm. with each other it's just that sort of thing except Mm. in this case right uh i mean the to put it a different way i think like the the analogy here for people like say our generation right is like uh oh we're young teen boys who are friends in the 2000s time to call each other homophobic slurs all the time yeah. Right. I, I, yeah. I, I, that's helpful. Yeah. Because I just I'm not sure. Is this meant to be like shocking or is it meant to be like normal? I, I think it's normal. I think it's like the puncturing of the weirdness of the dream with the little kid being vulgar. Got it. Because they do, and they do call each other homophobic slurs. Yeah. Regularly in this story as well. Right. That's mm-hmm. also happening. Um, and in, in, you know, in much the same way that those things still happened when I was a kid. I don't know if that's the case now. People are probably calling each other like a default skin now. Mm-hmm. No I, skin. I have heard that, that that's a thing. A no skin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I do know that, that, uh, that's happened. So, um, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know. It, I, that's, it's, it was so shocking that I had to, to bring that up. There's another weird moment that happens around race here, mm-hmm. Michael, that we also have talked yep. about. Where, um, this is on page 356 in my volume. <clears throat> this is Gordy talking. Because he's talking about being ignored in a general sense, right? You know, overshadowed by his dead brother, you know, kind of passing through life as a ghost. This business about being ignored. I could never really pin it down until I did a book, a book report in high school on this novel called The Invisible Man. When I agreed to do the book for Miss Hardy, I thought it was going to be the science fiction story about the guy in bandages and Foster Grants. Claude Rains played him in the movies. When I found out it was a different story, I tried to give the book back, but Miss Hardy wouldn't let me off the hook. I ended up being real, real uh, glad. The Invisible Man is about a Negro. Nobody ever notices him at all until he fucks up. People uh, look right through him. When he talks, nobody answers. He's like a black ghost. Once I got into it, I ate that book up like it was a John D. McDonald because that cat Ralph Ellison was writing about me mm-hmm. at the supper table. It was Denny. How many ti- how how many did you strike out in Denny? Who asked you to do the Sadie Hawkins dance in Denny? I want to talk to you to talk talk to you man to man about what that car we were looking at. That's a really hard one for me. <laughs> um, I'd say pass it so he just keeps going and going right. There, there is something so beautifully ignorant mm-hmm. about Stephen King writing about a little white kid mm-hmm. who, who reads The Invisible Man is like, that's all about me. Mm-hmm. That's a story all about this little white kid. Yep. 
and it's going to happen again, I'm pretty sure. I'm saying it now so we can see whether or not I'm hoist on my own petard when we get there. But uh, this exact same sort of thing, basically, is a part of Eddie's backstory in Drawing of the Three. Like, he does the same thing where he starts reading Ellison's Invisible Man, thinking it's going to be about, like, the invisible man hg wells thing uh and then it turns out to be about like the, the experience of this black man in america and uh he's like oh that's not what i wanted but then it turns out he can relate to this experience and so that's cool uh it's also exactly the kind of colorblind ideology that we were talking about with mm -hmm. shawshank where you know from i think the the you know white liberal perspective here it's like Oh, here is a structure that I can see parallels another structure. Uh, therefore, there is nothing inherent to like someone's race uh, that makes them feel like invisible or exploited or passed over or whatever. Um, it's just a way that anyone can feel, including little white boys. Yep. Uh, yeah. It, the the. <laughs> And look, and that's not to say there's not like a, like, maybe not universal, but that there are not things that you can read as like a white person in Invisible Man and think, oh yeah, okay, like I, uh, you know, maybe don't experience things like this in my life, but there are lessons I can learn that are helpful to me in my life, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, uh, I think good literature probably does do that in some ways of like, wow, like look at the world, but it is overwhelmingly mm -hmm. and like extremely about the experience of being black in America. Yeah, and uh, and the abstracting it away from that is uh, a wild thing to do. Well, it's you're, uh, it, it puts you in a position where you're doing the exact same sort of thing that the book is trying to bring to your attention and criticize, which is to say that you are <laughs> rendering the protagonist like and his race invisible in order to look through it and see something that's more like you know uh, amenable to you as the white reader yep i god steve it's like you almost can't write a better character than stephen king himself <laughs> as far as like the missteps of the the people in the demographic of his era mm -hmm. you know like he's just he's 10 for 10 on this one but uh but the thing that happens at the end is that uh you know there's a conversation that happens between chris and gordy where chris is like hey look I'm going to try real hard to get out of this place, but you can really do it. And if you don't do it, you're going to end up just being some asshole. Mm -hmm. So like pull, grab your bootstraps nerd <laughs> and do it. And, uh, that feels really also, um, that feels autobiographical. You know, I don't know if Stephen King ever had a conversation like that, but it seems to be the way that Stephen King kind of thinks of himself is that he could be just a small town Mainer mm -hmm. and he had some talent, but there was some bootstrap pulling too along the way. Um, and, uh, you know, he's never willing to give over to contingency only there. Like it's willpower ultimately that, that, you know, the fantasy of the meritocracy and of, of, uh, you know, the self-made person mm -hmm. that really gets him there. Uh, what, what do you think about like the kind of final standoff? Because the grease, the evil greasers show up and then the, the kids show up, the quartet show up here and then mm -hmm. they like, you know, fight over the body. Mm -hmm. um, does that work for you here at the end? I, I don't know if like work is the question to bring to this because I found like by the end, I am just very bored of this story. <laughs> um, and the confrontation with the greasers, Ace Merrill and his gang, 
uh, I guess is interesting because we're like it's it's Steve really letting the evil greaser like uh, out of the box. Like we've had hints of this through everything thus far, but this is where we get like the most evil greasers. And what I think is maybe most interesting about this scene is like most of these are characters that we have not met until this scene starts. And very, very quickly, we understand like their whole dynamic, right? There's this whole like weird little evil greaser ecology, uh, their own like little social circle. Um, and all of these characters get sketched very quickly. Uh, I guess it's an effective standoff in the sense that, uh, you know, it's uh, we've called them the, the cotet. It's like these these four boys versus uh, I don't remember how many greasers there are, but you know, this other group, we have kind of like two forms of like young boys friend groups facing off against one another, sort of like two visions of like what it means to be a, you know, young white man in a in a small rural town in America. Um, the thing that is maybe most interesting is the fact uh, like how Gordy, I think, and specifically um, becomes increasingly aware of like there's just this corpse here like it's it's us we're like having this kind of uh you know we're being kids having kind of like a kid scuffle uh but also there's a corpse here and then by the time that chris eventually produces a gun uh and there's a, a threat of actual like you know or rather more death um that is i think that's a good kind of way of ratcheting it up to make it feel like we've we've built to something um mm -hmm. But in general, I find the ending of this story much more interesting than kind of the climax. Yeah, I the this kind of ending section, it's so weird because it is kind of overwritten. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, this is a fairly compressed story. You know, like I said, it's these like chunks of scenes. Um, but then this gets like really stretched out, like time slows down. And there's this rhythm that King enters into it. I mean, I think this is some of excised from the story i think some of the best king writing we have seen because he does this thing where it's like the weather is coming in and there's mm -hmm. rain and so it's like wind whipping around very cinematic and then like they'll they'll talk to each other a bit and then the rain comes down and that like interrupts them mm -hmm. and you know they're just having to kind of sit through it and wait and they don't really know what's going to happen and like Vern and teddy run off and there's this real kind of last stand moment of like if uh, you know, it's it's Father Callahan, right? Mm -hmm. Like Chris is there and he has a handgun and he's trying to hold the faith, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and he doesn't have, he knows that his power in that moment is not in the symbol. It's not in the gun because he's not going to shoot anybody. Mm -hmm. um, or or maybe he will and there's, you know, this kind of tension around that. that this, is, this is a moment that is on the edge of going extremely bad. You know, Gordy says that in the narration. And it is Gordy holding the faith and standing there and saying, no, we will not move. Uh, we're not going to give you this body that like lets the whole thing kind of continue. And then so it's like conversation and then the natural world and then conversation again. And it's all wrapped up in this kind of, you know, reduction to meat of the body there. Um, I don't know. I think uh, I, I agree, like sitting and reading it, this whole story, the kind of mismeasure between the two parts doesn't make it particularly exciting to read i think it doesn't really fit super well but i think just by itself i think it's some really 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 strong kingian writing but they ultimately scare those evil greasers right off and uh, they don't claim the body um you know they end up feeling like that's pretty bad but the greasers tell them hey when you come back we're gonna beat the shit out of you we're gonna catch all of you and beat the hell out of you and they do that mm -hmm. <laughs> 
they like end up breaking their arms and legs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and fingers, they break Gordy's fingers, I think. Um, it, it's it's pretty rough stuff, uh, you know, overall. Um, and then we get the very famous ending of the book. Mm-hmm. Or of, of the story. And that's how I became Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> Me? I'm a writer now. Like I said, a lot of critics think what I write is shit. A lot of the time I think they're right. But it still freaks me out to put those words freelance writer down in the occupation blank of the forms you have to fill out at credit desks and in doctor's offices. My story sounds so much like a fairy tale that it's fucking absurd. Like, come on, Steve. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. It's like, oh, uh, they made a movie out of my book and then they made a movie out of my other book. And wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he goes Boy. back to Castle Rock and he sees Ace Merrill, the head uh, juvenile delinquent. Um, and uh, Gordy's uh, all successful and, you know, just in town for a little bit. But Ace Merrill's still working at the mill and he's got a pot belly now and he drives down the street and parks in the parking lot of the bar. And then he goes into the bar and he also he has a Reagan uh, a Bush um, bumper sticker on his car. Yep. Right. And so it's just that's Steve being Steve. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and his there's some like poignance here that gets transformed in the movie in a very different kind of way. Um, but there's this this kind of poignance around all of his other friends being dead. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, Teddy and Vern like barely make it out. You know, they 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 live in, in Castle Rock and kind of die in various ways. And then Chris does make it out. You know, he, he pulls himself up by his, his own bootstraps as well, all the way through high school and against everyone's expectations goes on to become a lawyer and then is tragically murdered Mm -hmm. trying to help someone. Um, and you know, that, that is, uh, saccharinified in the novel or in the film in a way that we will have talked about in the bonus episode. Um, you want to talk about this last story? Unless you have a last thing to say about, uh, let's the body. Let's talk about, uh, the breathing method, which is called a winter's tale, which is a Shakespeare reference as one of Shakespeare's most formally strange plays, which, uh, you know, explicitly combines uh, the first half of that play is written as a tragedy. And then the second half is written as a comedy. So uh, a very strange play. Um, this is a story that is uh, very boldly written as uh, two or three stories that don't really go anywhere. Yeah. It's it is it is the shortest story in this collection and it feels interminable. Yeah, it took me I think I read most of these in like one or two evenings of reading and it, this one might have taken me a full week <laughs> to get through because it's so boring. Like every part of it's pretty cool, right? There's this mystical club that you go to and you hear old white men talk. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe not all that's exciting, but 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 you know, it's this idea they come and tell stories. And you eventually find out, like, oh shit! Like, it's like a like a, a place that's connected to a thousand different worlds. So you get a thousand different stories. Dang! Mm-hmm. It's like a little hint of Dark Tower stuff coming in here before the fact. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. There's there are other worlds than these to hear old white men tell stories in, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so like that's happening. And there's like a mysterious guy who runs the club, and he never ages, and he loves Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> like stuff but then you hear these stories and like some of them are interesting but the one that we get the most of is uh about a man he's a doctor he is going to uh uh help a young single woman uh 
deliver her baby. It's like 1909. Yeah, and it's like gauche at the time to, for a woman to be unmarried and pregnant. And so uh, she's having a hard time with that. So he says, I will help you do that. He teaches her a thing called the breathing method. Not Lamaze. Lamaze is different and came later and stole this idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really weird that Steve's got to like work that out that way. He's like, all right, I want to write a story that's basically about Lamaze, but I want to set it in a time period before <laughs> it existed. How will I do- deal with that? Okay, I'll just say that Lamaze stole it. Yep. <laughs> or, you know, whatever. Appropriated it. Uh, he teaches her this method, um, a lot of extremely boring melodrama for like showing up for her appointments and like learning mm-hmm. more about her life, which is not particularly exciting in any way. And, uh, then she shows up and the cab that she is in crashes into some other shit and uh, she is ejected from the car and her head is cut off. Mm-hmm. And the head continues doing the breathing method to deliver the baby. Mm -hmm. Well, then the body continues doing the breathing method because he comes up on the corpse, the headless corpse, and he can still hear like the whistling of like Mm -hmm. the throat breathing as uh, she delivers the baby like postmortem. Yeah. Oh, do we do we get an image of the lips moving or am I just making that oh, up? He, I might have made that up. I no, there's a bit where he like cuz the head is like over in the gutter or something and he mentions yes. like one of the last things he mentions is like looking over and seeing her head in the gutter uh, and seeing the lips move. Got it. Okay. Oh, that's right because she says like thank you or whatever mm-hmm. and he sees that. So that okay. I I remember I saw something or remember the lips. But yeah, they it has a baby and then the baby goes on to like exist Mm -hmm. and have a life and he got kind of keeps up with the baby yep yeah and it's just this entire story so this uh story is dedicated to um peter and susan straub uh Mm -hmm. peter straub being someone that another writer a horror writer uh in in some respect he also writes kind of thrillers and sort of more traditional literary novels he was talked about in dan's macabre in particular his novel ghost story uh and in a little bit uh he and king are going to co-write the talisman together so people who like each other and clearly like King has met Straub by this point, like he's dedicating the story to, to Straub and his wife. Um, this story is clearly kind of reflecting some of Straub's stuff back at him. So Ghost Story, the novel, is about a group of old men in a New England or actually it's like a it's northern New York, New York State, um, a group of old white men called the Chowder Society who get together once a month and tell each other ghost stories. Uh, and that is like the, the seed for the club in this story, uh, which is like, it's, it's, it's in, I think Manhattan. Um, and it's like the sort of not upper, upper crust, but like, you know, wealthy lawyers, like the narrator at the beginning of the story, cause it's a series of nested narratives. So the narrator is like a uh, he's a lawyer in a law firm and he eventually ascends to partner and he gets invited by like one of the founders, like one of the founding partners to like come to this club, which is like an old style, like Victorian era gentleman's club with like smoking rooms and billiards and um, like sort of, you know, all these sort of like weird little social protocols. And it's not clear why anyone gets invited to join this club or what they're supposed to do. Uh, But they come together and they tell stories of like weird things that have happened to them or weird things that they have heard. And it just sort of seems to be like the other thing here is that it's also the Midnight Society from Are You Afraid of the Dark? Uh, Because they have this big old fireplace with an inscription over it saying it is not 
it is uh it is the tale not he who tells it whatever we want to do with that uh but before they have to tell their story they like throw powder on the fire and it makes the fire turn different colors and things like spark up you know this is this is maybe the most interesting stuff uh and it gives us a sense of like this narrator is a type of character who is very Strabian. Uh, I mean, he's he's very Kingian in his way, but he's Strabian in the sense that, like, he and his wife are not super wealthy, but, like, well-off, like, upper-middle-class Manhattanites, right? He's a lawyer. His wife has, like, social clubs that she's a part of, right? Like, women's interest groups, uh, like, in the community. I don't think I don't think it's mentioned that she has a job. I think she, like, is primarily, like, a person who is doing stuff in society. Um, so... Uh, we these are all kind of more Straubian qualities. Uh, Straub, one of his big influences is um, Henry James. So uh, Victorian, like late Victorian, early Edwardian author who is very sort of uh, concerned with like society and so like high society or like people entering into society and uh, learning how to interface with like families who are better established or have more money uh, and not in like an old aristocratic way, but like these are, you know, like the new money is becoming the old money um, in, in a way. Mm -hmm. And so we get all of these kind of interesting class uh, tensions or anxieties uh, that are very common in Straub uh, here percolating up uh, through King as he kind of plays with some Straub. He, he adds some Straubian action figures to his toy set, essentially. Yep. Uh, sort of the, the, the self-conscious literariness of it, right, is, is very Straubian in that way. But uh, unfortunately, this story is just not that interesting. <laughs> No, it's like watching someone. It, this reads to me, which it's astonishing to hear that this is not like some trunk story that he pulled out. That this was written originally for it. I mean, I think I don't think that's astonishing. I think it feels like oh, I got to write a fourth one of these. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, but well, the reason I uh, yes, I guess that makes sense. But um, the reason I say that is that it, you know it kind of feels like. Um, the kind of thing you would write in like undergrad where you're like consciously mimicking a style to like figure that out. Yes. You know, it feels like an experiment in style mm -hmm. and maybe it is. And he's like, fuck it. <laughs> like, let's just throw that thing in there. But it is, um, uh, I would suggest if you were reading this book, you could just skip it mm -hmm. if you want to like, it's not going to hurt you any. And you could skip at pupil too. So, <laughs> I was gonna say there's a reason I think that uh, of all the novellas here, the breathing method is the only one that has not been made into a film. But lucky for us, I'm pretty sure Bloomhouse bought the options a couple years ago, and supposedly they're working <laughs> right. on it. Uh, in addition to you know the million other things that Bloomhouse is trying to put out at any given point in time. Great. Uh, you know, it's really funny. So I've read different seasons a few times, and I guess I've read this before, but I think every time I start it and just quit reading it. Um, but I, uh, I do remember being a, uh, like reading this book the first time and being confused about like, and just reading the title. Mm -hmm. Um, and this like, it's really strange that this like is lodged in my head. It like came back to me very clearly, but you know, getting this book in like the seventh grade or the sixth grade or something and, and like looking through these titles and thinking that the breathing method is the same thing as like the rhythm method, the, <laughs> the birth control yeah. method. Yeah. <laughs> And being like, what is Stephen King going to say about that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, being someone who like, you know, like I at that, time, at that time, I think my understanding of what that meant was very low, uh -huh. <laughs> you know, very limited. <laughs> uh, 
And I'm like, I wonder what he could have to say about that. I'm going to get so educated. And, but having no memory of this. So maybe I didn't even finish reading it. Maybe I got into there and, and realized that's not what it was about. And I was like, I'm out of here. Who cares? <laughs> False promises, Steve. Um, what's your, uh, we got some segments on the show, Michael. Uh, let's start with my favorite kingism, which is the segment where Cameron and I choose some line or a bit of prose or, or a short paragraph uh, from what we've just read that we think is indicative of King's style generally, something that is indelibly Kingian. So my favorite kingism uh, here for this episode is, I mean, I, I kind of took the easy way out here. I just chose the first paragraph of Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. Because uh, I think, well, I'll explain after I read it. There's a guy like me in every state and federal prison in America, I guess. I'm the guy who can get it for you. Tailor-made cigarettes, a bag of reefer if you're partial to that, a bottle of brandy to celebrate your son or daughter's high school graduation, or almost anything else. With reason, that is. It wasn't always that way. I came to Shawshank when I was just 20, and I am one of the few people in our happy little family willing to own up to what they did. I committed murder, etc., 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 and it just goes on. Um, I chose this uh, because, like what you said uh, earlier when we were talking about this novella, uh, like King gets the narrative voice here. Like, this is him kind of fully in control of this character's voice and knowing exactly what he wants to do with it. Uh, like, the way that these sentences... Uh, they're folksy, right? Like it's, it's, and you know, you talked about how the film kind of can supersede the novella in a lot of ways. It's really hard to read this and not imagine it in Morgan Freeman's voice. Mm -hmm. It's like very sort of matter of fact, like I'm the guy who can get it for you. These are the things I can get for you, right? We established very quickly, like this guy, uh, you know, he's got connections. Uh, he's not very judgmental. Um, and, you know, then he turns in, he's like, and also like, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm a murderer. Uh, and we, we go on from there. Uh, mine is when uh, something you actually alluded to earlier about. Uh, it's on 469, which is in the body in my book. Um, and it's when he realizes, when Gordy realizes like, oh shit, Ray Brower is like a real kid and he is dead. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like this moment of like Stephen King introspection. You know, I mean, this is, this is Steve talking, uh, here. Um, uh, hold on, let me, let me go back here. So he's like describing, uh, his feet were bare and a few feet behind him caught up in tall blackberry brambles. I saw a pair of filthy low top kids for a moment. I was puzzled. Why was he here in his tinnies there? Then I realized and the realization was a, like a dirty punch below the belt. It's like, this is in the moment, right? Like, like stepping out, this is in the moment. And then zoom, we have, this is all in the same paragraph, no paragraph break. We are zooming way away from that. My wife, my kids, my friends, they all think that having an imagination like mine must be quite nice. Aside from making all this dough, I can have a little mind movie whenever things get dull. Mostly they're right, but every now and then it turns around and bites the shit out of you with these long teeth, teeth that have been filed to points like the teeth of a cannibal. You see things you just as, as soon not see, things that keep you awake until first light. I saw one of these things now, saw it with an absolute clarity and certainly, certainty. He had been knocked, spang out of his kids. The train had knocked... It knocked him out of his keds just as it had knocked the life out of his body. And so there's this, you know, I think that's just like solid Stephen King writing in general, but this is the point where Stephen King has truly, I think, mastered whatever his narrative form is. Um, I don't think we're going to see as many kind of 
leaps forward as we have in this uh, in different seasons as we do here which is like he can just hold it all in his head and hold it all in one narrative flow effortlessly mm-hmm. all of time and space within the narrator's like capability can get summoned up in any moment and it doesn't feel weird mm-hmm. that we can cut back and forth between those things and that is that might sound and it looks really easy here and it might sound easy but it is not um it is not an easy task to make someone feel like everything is coherent when you are cutting back and forth between a lot of different times and spaces and kind of uh, authorial voices. This is the mind of a child that goes into the mind of an adult reflecting on their childhood, then goes back to the mind of a child. But it's a hard thing to do and he makes it look like it's the easiest thing in the world. Mm -hmm. What in the Kingiverse then is our next segment. And this is where we outline connections between what we've just read and the larger sort of setting of shared continuity that Stephen King stories sometimes have. We've already talked a little bit about this where, uh, you know, Castle Rock is a thing that's shown up a couple of times now. Uh, We have Constable Bannerman who showed up in the dead zone. uh, And then also Cujo. Cujo is mentioned here. And then we have Shawshank, Apt Pupil, and uh, the body all kind of like looping themselves together into into a weird little shared setting uh weirdly Mm -hmm. enough the one story that does not get connected to the others is the breathing method but we do get a kind of like pseudo sequel to the breathing method in i believe skeleton crew uh where we have another story that is set in the club from the breathing method so that's something um yeah I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, also, not just, you know, Castle Rock, but sp- this story specifically introduces uh, the character of Ace Merrill, who is going to show up a couple of times in some additional Castle Rock stories, um, at least one big one. Uh, and then Ray Brower, the young boy who uh, got hit by the train, uh, he is said to be from Chamberlain, which is the town where Carrie takes place, and that Carrie also blows up. So... Hmm. does not seem like Carrie took place in the same continuity as the body. Yeah. Well, uh, it would have happened later, right? Oh, no. But, but well, Gordy would have known, though. Hold he, on. He, <laughs> could you imagine, like, the bit at the end of the body where Gordy's like, well, now that the white girl's blown up, <laughs> Chamberlain. <laughs> Teddy died in Vietnam. <laughs> Chamberlain was blown up by Carrie White. I was say, Vern was Vern was on the outskirts of Chamberlain, and he got taken out in the blast radius. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's weird. Yeah. That's a weird. Yeah, he doesn't bring that up. So presumably, yeah, this yeah. is maybe a more mundane uh, Carrie uh, um, uh, Castle Rock. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I guess uh, the other thing to just drop here because it's something that gets brought up a lot. Uh, there is a story that Stephen King tells has told that we've brought up on the show before that when he was a young man, uh, like at about the age of the characters in the body are younger. He went out with a friend. This is a story that his mother tells or, or told rather that mm. uh, little mm. Stevie came home and he was very silent and had a strange look on his face, um, went to his room, didn't talk for a while. And then the mother uh, later found out that the boy that, uh, King had gone out to play with got hit by a train and uh, King's mother suspected that he saw this happen. And so 
this is not the last evil train we're going to see in the works of Stephen King. Uh, and so I think it's in some ways impossible not to think of these things in relation to this like tiny little bit of biography, even though Steve is also going to say that like nothing I write has anything to do with, you know, my real life. Uh, I think this story is one where we can probably press him on that because he is so clearly trying to process his real life uh, that, you know, mm -hmm. it's just it's 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 a a thing to think about, right? Like the, the formative experience of death or potentially, you know, the formative experience of, of witnessing death. And the other way to, I guess, look at this, the way that the body kind of presents acknowledgement of death, right? The reality of death uh, as part of that growing up uh, uh, sort of narrative that these characters have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, especially I think the, you know, whether whether it's a uh, direct working through or whatever. Right. Stephen King's already written that story down in Dance Macabre. Right. Mm -hmm. He has already said and presented that story to us as like a thing that may or may not be formative to his life. And he writes this after that. Right. So there, there's this kind of like double working through in public. If you've read his other book, you know that this is something about Stephen King. He's telling you that, you know, it's not like this is lore that we're learning, you know, down the pipe or whatever. Mm -hmm. So. Um, in some ways, I think that, that this is a riff on Stephen King's own writing about it. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that we should maybe talk about in the body, I know this is a long episode, but that's what happens when you read four different unrelated stories. Yeah. Um, the other thing we might want to talk about is are the plagiarism accusations mm -hmm. around the body. Um, do, we, do you want to briefly, because you, you dug up a little bit about that, and we might talk about it more on the bonus episode, but uh, do you want to just briefly and like, five sentences say what's up with that yeah. since you read more about it than I yeah. did. Yeah. So, uh, uh, a lot of my information on this point is coming out of, um, uh, haunted heart, the life and times of Stephen King, which is an unauthorized biography written by a woman named Lisa Rogak. Um, I think that's how you say her name. I'm not sure, but, uh, R O G A K. Uh, in this biography, she mentions something that you, you, you'll, it's not the only place where this comes up. Uh, after this story was published, um, it also gets made into the film Stand By Me. It, it becomes popular, right? This is when this is when this collection is released, people are like, oh, Stephen King can write things that are, you know, not just straight up horror novels or like novels about TK or whatever. There are these other stories. And so, uh, you know, there, there's some buzz around it. A guy named George McLeod, uh, who was Stephen King's college friend and roommate, uh, who is also the person who the body is dedicated to. He reads this story and is shocked because uh, in his accounting, this is a story that he was writing when they were in college. Uh, he was writing a story about a group of young boys from a small town uh, who go out in search of a body that they have heard uh, is, is out in the woods somewhere. Now, I think in his original story, it is the body of a dead dog. Um, but like this is like this is a thing that he was writing and like he shared like his progress on it with King. And uh, then years later, King puts out this novella, The Body, and McLeod, you know, basically raises uh, a lot of concerns over it. I believe he ends up even raising a lawsuit, maybe. Um, but it, how it ends is that like they don't speak to each other anymore, as, as far as I'm aware um as as you were doing that i was looking at some good read reviews of this of uh, haunted heart um mm -hmm. because there are quite a few one-star reviews and i was wondering oh is it because these are you know is, is the book perhaps inaccurate 
Uh, no, that's not what people's people are basically just angry that this is, you know, uh, mostly just cobbled together from other things, you know, so it's it's her kind of mm. uh, summarizing a lot of stuff. But it is overwhelmingly funny uh, to me that so many of the negative reviews are just you should read on writing instead. It's got better information. And listen to me, please, listener of Just King Things. A biography written by a third party. And a biography written by the person, an autobiography, mm-hmm. are different. And it's and biographies are not just about information presented in them. They are about uh, the, the uh, ideological stance and rhetorical stance through which that information is presented. Mm-hmm. So please, I don't think, I think most Just King's Things readers would not leave this sort of review of any sort of book, but... Please uh, know, if you don't know, Mm -hmm. that an autobiography and a biography are different. Please and thank you. Yeah. Uh, Just to just to read some some quotes here. Mm -hmm. He stole it from me. Uh, I recognized that story as being literature and Steve recognized it, too, though not on a conscious level. I don't know what that means. Uh, That that was my interjection. Uh, Quote, Mm -hmm. he later told me he had borrowed my story to write his. Uh, so like from McLeod's perspective, right, there's just like a straight up like, yeah, no, I took that idea and like did something with it. Um, and then, uh, sort of reflecting on kind of their past together, like what was like being um, college students together and being friends who were like in these writing classes and so on. Um, quote, if he's near something, he will absorb it like a sponge. He's Velcro when it comes to popular culture. He picks it all up. It's his strength. And naturally it's his weakness too. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, and so apparently, yeah, how this worked out is that McLeod was not happy about. Uh, also, I don't know if his name is McLeod or McLeod. I don't know how he pronounces it, um, but mm-hmm. uh, he was upset about the body, um, but he sort of just like let it slide. It wasn't until the film came around where he was like, all right, like I need to say something about this. Uh, and that's when he apparently took it to King and their their association ended. Yeah, I don't. I imagine Stephen King doesn't take that well. Mm-hmm. The story, the story meister, mm-hmm. and especially not if he's like uh, hammered on cocaine. Mm-hmm. Um, Uncle Stevie's mixtape, Michael, where we talk about all the songs that show up in this thing. There are a million of them here, mm-hmm. so we got to get through them. Quick. And they all come from the body. They all come from the body. All right. Uh, what in the world's come over you by Jack Scott? Uh. uh uh, that was a, this is a me one. Uh, it just sounds like a rockabilly song. Two stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time by Troy Shondell. Uh, this is a similar kind of like of the era rockabilly, uh, or R&B kind of thing. Um, like three stars. It's fine. It's a fine one of these songs. King Creole by Elvis. The only thing worse than Bob Dylan is Elvis. <laughs> one star. Only the Lonely, Roy Orbison, five stars, a million stars, as many stars as I could possibly give, I give to Roy Orbison. Only the Lonely. Da, dum, 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 be, do, bum. It's good stuff. Uh, Timey Kangaroo, oh gosh, Timey Kangaroo Downsport by Rolf Harris is a comedy song making fun of Australians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, one star, I support Australians. <laughs> Uh, I, I, it gets one star on political grounds. 
<laughs> uh, Long Black Veil, which is here uh, presented as being performed by someone named Carl Stormer, who I think is fictional because uh, he shows up in a story within a story. But Long Black Veil is a real song, uh, a sort of like country and Western standard. Um, I love this song. It's great. Uh, five stars. Uh, Six Days on the Road by Dave Dudley. It sounds like a, a like a rock song from, I don't know, 1960. Uh, got like powerfully guitar driven. If you like that kind of thing, you'll probably like this, but it also sounds like every other song in that genre. So two stars. Uh, Roll Me Over in the Clover, a another kind of novelty song uh, that has many people who have performed it. But this song is boring. One star. It's like... Uh, wouldn't it be funny, like, wouldn't it be funny if I sang a song that sounded like it was about sex and also it's 1943 and so our innuendo is, like, the most surface level, like, just uncomplicated, like, I don't know. I, I imagine, like, Victoria and Albert Hall, you know, everyone's laughing, rolling around in the aisles while this woman just sings, like, oh, will you roll me over in the clover? Mm-hmm. Again? It's really, uh, it's like a like a Seth Rogen comedy in the 1940s. <laughs> yes. uh, Come Softly to Me by the Fleetwoods. Uh, it's a kind of a uh, slow standard, um, and uh, it's okay, three stars. Uh, Susie Darlin by Robin Luke. This is another, uh, like, rockabilly song. It's got, uh, or rockabilly rock and roll. It's got kind of a... a a Buddy Holly type performance uh, in terms of like the, the way he would like fluctuate his voice. Um, it's not as good as Buddy Holly. It's just, it sounds like someone trying to sound like Buddy Holly, two stars. It's fine. Uh, got sorry. I ran all the way home by the Impalas. Uh, you've made a note here that in the text, it's misattributed to little Anthony and the Imperials. Uh, I don't know. I only listened to about five seconds of the song because it was bad. So one star. Hmm. And our final song is Party Doll by Buddy Knox. Uh, This song is like classic rockabilly. Uh, It is, I think it's kind of an annoying song to listen to, but it's also just like so indicative of the sound and time. It's just a guy like saying, come on and be my party doll, saying it over and over and over again to kind of a rockabilly beat. Um, I'm going to give that four stars for just being a really good version of the thing that it is. Party Doll, uh, that could be like a punk song in the Uh 80s, you know, that could be a, uh, like the Killers style, like retro rock song Mm -hmm. from the early 2000s. It could go anywhere. Yeah. Um, and I guess that, that ends up all of our segments. Uh, anything else you wanted to mention about these songs? Nope. Uh, generally not good songs this time. Oh, you know what? There, there is in fact an additional song. Did you know this? No. Two additional songs. The there is an epigraph. Oh, I forgot the epigraph to this book. I know. I didn't think about it either until uh, just a minute ago. So we got ACDC saying "Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap." I don't know why this is here. <laughs> not, not a single clue why this is here, other than the fact that uh, King likes ACDC. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I heard it through the grapevine. Norman Whitfield, mm-hmm. also the California Raisins. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a Flaubert quote. Who yeah. cares? <laughs> uh, ACDC song. I'm going to give that four stars. I actually I actually like that song. 
Yeah, that's great. Uh, Heard through the grapevine, also four stars, but only the California Raisins version. If you want to continue uh, to support us in our efforts to investigate the, the California Raisins, uh, you can go to twitter.com slash range touch to find out all of the stuff that we are up to. That's where we tend to post updates when when we've posted new podcasts or, or new video content and things like that. It's where we'll let you know uh, when things in like our shop are on sale. You can go to rangetouch.com slash shop and you could see some of the T-shirts that we have. If you want to buy a T-shirt and support us, uh, we have a one that's just like a general range touch shirt. We have a just King things t-shirt. We also have a cool print that you can order. Um, is there one other shirt? Do we have three shirts? We have the just King things, uh, like podcast logo, uh, the thumbnail that you see in your, in your podcast reader. Uh, you could have that on a t-shirt so you could (laughs) wear cartoons of screaming me and Cameron, uh, fighting each other in the desert. Uh, you laugh about it, but people have bought it. I'm looking right now. <laughs> I can see that a number of people, there are people walking around in the world with that on their body. So shout out to you. if that's Thank it. you, folks. Uh, if you want to help us uh, more directly, you can go to patreon.com slash range touch uh, and you can kick us a you know, couple of dollars a month, just a cup of coffee. If, if that's uh, what you want to do, just any little bit helps. Uh, but if you give us five dollars, you will get access to the Patreon uh, exclusive Just King Things bonus episodes uh, where Cameron and I and sometimes a special guest uh, watch a in time with whatever we're reading, we watch a Stephen King film adaptation or, or some other piece of media will probably move into into the future when we run out of relevant films. Um, but then talk about that. Uh, this month, we will be talking about the film based on The Body, uh, Stand By Me, 1986. Uh, I think, you know, a well-known film, sort of popular in its own way and popular in a way where people are like, oh, Stephen King wrote that very similar to Shawshank Redemption. Uh, it'll be a fun mm-hmm. time because we also have a very special guest, uh, who, again, I'm not going to name, uh, just go over to, I don't know, our feed. Uh, actually, I'll probably probably mention the guest on the Twitter feed if you're not uh, on Patreon. So uh, you can check that out and see who's joining us and uh, hopefully join us yourselves. Uh, in, you know, the other thing that you can do if you want to help us out, that is a huge help, is if you rate and review this on, you know, Apple Podcasts or whatever service it is that you use, uh, that really does go toward, like, you know, surfacing us in, in like, lists and uh, making sure that, you know, people can discover us. Uh, you can also help people discover us more directly by telling someone you know who you think would like this show uh, to, to give us a listen. Um, you know, pick out an episode that you think that is uh, most interesting and tell them to just check it out. Uh, tell them to check out this episode if you like but uh, all of that helps all that's good stuff Uh, and in the meantime we're going to continue sort of like you know soldiering forth uh, reading our Stephen King books and preparing to talk about them uh, next month, we will be back here, same same time and channel, to talk about we're, we're finally out of 1982 we've been in 1982 for months now 1983 begins next month with uh oh my yeah. god <laughs> with a a another kind of like popular Stephen King classic uh Christine uh the the haunted car novel I don't remember it being like especially like one of my favorite King books but I remember that like structurally and formally that's another weird book like King does weird stuff with like perspective and point of view in that book and I'm interested in coming back to that now that I uh, you know, have gone through 
years of school and have like ways of thinking about like, why is this novel consistently switching from first person to third person? That's just confusing to me because I'm 12. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's been a long time. I think I've only ever read Christine one time and I've remembered enjoying it. I think it's like just a solid, you know, my my pre-memory here is that it's just a solid, scary story, you know, like no more, no less. It's got an evil greaser in it Mm-hmm. and a jock. Yeah. So, uh, you know, get excited for that if you like a good old fashioned greaser jock combo. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm excited for it. I'm looking right now. I was trying to see like what the what special features the the uh, Blu-ray has because there's a, uh, a 4K mm. version of it that is new. I was trying to see what's going on in there. It's a 35th and edition, and edition anniversary edition. But uh, notably, uh, like an Amazon listing never has these things on it. You always have to like go to like DVDbeaver.com or whatever. Yeah, so uh, we'll find out. But uh, I'm excited. John Carpenter film. Uh, interested in watching that. We'll be doing that on the bonus ode. So, yeah. Head on back next month uh, to hear us talk about that. Uh, listen to the rev of the the demonic engine of that 1957 Plymouth Fury. We'll see if I remembered that off the top of my head when I pick up the book. Uh, why are we doing it? Why why do we come back next month? What's up? What what draws us back? Even what draws us back to Castle Rock? Even if Castle Rock is going to destroy us. Oh, let me see here. Let me count on my fingers. Uh... Do we do it for... Uh, you tell me. I'm, I'm pretty confused here. Now, do we do it for an old Nazi? Um, no. That is that is okay. one of the things that we're actually trying not to do things for. We don't do yeah. it for... That's mm -hmm. really... I'm going to write that down. Okay, hold on. Yeah. Let me... Okay, got that down. And, uh, okay, do we do it for... Oh, I know. We do it for uh, our evil older brother with a switchblade. Um, well... I mean, sometimes we have to do those things because if we don't, then our evil older brother will beat us up. Mm -hmm. Okay, but we're not doing it that way. No, on no, no. That's not like sort of the 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 Ooh. mission statement. Oh, oh, oh. Interesting. Okay, wait. Let me. All right, write that down. All right, got it. And uh, oh wait, of course, we're doing it for Steve. <laughs>